The following program contains mature subject matter not suitable for young viewers and graphic images that may be disturbing. Viewer discretion is advised. Hey everyone, it is Friday, Friday, Friday! You know what that means. Time for another podcast of We Wild Woman and the Fat Man Farmer. Today, you are only getting the Fat Man Farmer because We Wild Woman is at home with her new baby goat. So last night sometime, one of her pet goats decided to go into labor and had a little doe. So... She wanted to stay home, make sure everybody was okay, and keep an eye on them, especially since we have pretty cold temperatures today, or last night, on the way to warm up. But you got me today. So, I'm going to do a solo podcast, maybe two on my way into Indy. So, what are we going to talk about? It's going to be kind of a ramble, but we're going to stay on, try to stay on focus, of permaculture. Something that I know about, I can talk about, love to talk about it. And what permaculture means to me. And some of the things I've taken away from it. So, it's not going to be a how-to permaculture. I mean, you might pick up some things here and there. But there's a lot of visual that really needs to take place. I can describe it to the nth degree. But unless you're a visual person and can interpret it, you might be lost. So, let's get started. So, what is permaculture? Permaculture is... It's a, it's a mindset, it's a paradigm shift, it's so many things. Uh, Jack Spearco, who turned me on to it from the Survival Podcast, describes it as a design science. Um, some of the creators call it uh, permanent agriculture. Um, my take on it is, I would say definitely it is a design science, but if you've ever been familiar with the term Six Sigma, which is an engineering efficiency term, it's not necessarily engineering, it's a Japanese business term, for streamlining a manufacturing process. So if you've ever been in industry and they've talked about Six Sigma or the Japanese process on manufacturing, permaculture does the same thing with food production and ecology. So most of the somewhat leaders, um, I consider them leaders, I like a lot of these people better than some of the more altruistic and uh, hippy-dippy, call them purple mouth breathers, um, terms of permaculture, but a lot of the ones that I follow and I think are very successful were actually former engineers in their prior lives and found permaculture, and it changed their way of thinking completely. And a lot of them left the engineering world to do permaculture, which is essentially engineering in the ecology world, is what I call it. Um, one of those is Mark Shepard. He is up in Wisconsin. He took a 121-acre row crop, so corn, beans, and wheat, fields, and turned them into an oasis that produces more calories. I want to say on the magnitude of 10 times what it was producing on the same land amount of edible calories for people. He also does a lot of alley cropping, which is you planting trees, um, which are apple, some kind of nut or fruit tree, 
And then you, in between those rows, which are as wide as whatever implements you're using, so if you've got a 12-row disc or a 12-row planter or a 20-row planter, that's how far you put your trees um, apart with a little buffer on either side. I'd say 5 to 10 feet buffer on top of that. So, and then he plants row crops in between there, or he did until his trees got so big and thick that they started choking it out. Now he does much less row crop. Uh, Jeff Lawton, who was my teacher in permaculture, was a former engineer, and he is now the leader of Permaculture Research Institute of Australia, who he was handed that by Bill Mollison, who was one of the co-creators, along with Toby Hemingway. And I don't know Toby Hemingway's past. I want to say he might have some engineering or ecology background. He approached permaculture from somewhat of a different mindset than Bill Molson did and then what Jeff Lawton does. So anyway, um, back to permaculture. So permaculture to me is a paradigm shift about how you think about everything. And it was going through my permaculture design class... It, it just changed my way of thinking about everything, not just food production, not just, you know, planting and animals, but like everything. So one of the, there's three main ethics of the permaculture, which is care for people, care for the earth and return of the surplus. And where we get differential of opinions of that care for or uh, return the surplus is where the, I consider them purple mouth breathers, the social justice warriors differ from a lot of the more engineering, ecological type mindsets. So the first one is care of the people. And Jeff and many others who also practice and teach basically means that you're caring for people. So what you're doing does not harm people and you should care for the people in your immediate circle first before you look to try and execute these practices on caring for more than your core people and core people being who you're surrounded by your family um, your community your close community and then you know you look at a bigger picture and then care for the earth is whatever you're doing is not going to um, injure the ecosystem or it makes it better after you've been involved in it so we won't want to go dumping lots of toxins and pollutants as part of this practice. Um, and then the return to surplus. So return to surplus, return the surplus, could mean that you are selling your overage. So that means you are making a profit for your um, endeavor so that you can fund your home, pay the taxes, um, you know, further put finances into this um ecosystem or your project, whether it being a homestead, a farm, um, an ecological development, a planned community, whatever, you're able to return the surplus. Now, there's also return the surplus of, you know, you think about waste products that say animal manure. Well, that's really not a waste. It's a surplus, definitely, but you can use that into your garden, into your planting. Same way with weeding and, you know, food waste that may be inedible or, you know, it's damaged or it's starting to rot, whatever. It can be put into the compost and then returned to the system through soil and nutrients. 
So those are the, the three core principles. And then there are the 12 uh, values underneath all of that. Not going to go into all this because we're not going to have permaculture you know, class here. But those are the three basics. And when you follow those three basics, you, you get a kind of general gist of everything. So for me, permaculture was streamlining everything. And what we didn't do, and I, looking back, should have done it, but I was so eager when we got our property to start doing stuff, is sit back and observe. So we should have sat on our property for a year before we started doing anything. And that probably would have prevented us from making several type 1 errors that you know, we can fix and we have fixed in some places, but it's a lot of effort and shouldn't have had to do it had we observe. So when you're looking at observing, you're looking at what is your wind direction in the spring and in the summer, you know, through the seasons. Where does your rain fall? Where do the water paths go for when you do get rain? Is it all go to one area? Is there wet areas? Are there dry areas? Um, what are the plants that you have? The plants are indicating of all kinds of different things. For an example, Dandelion root means, you, or dandelions means you have a compacted soil, um, and those tap roots that they send out are trying to break up the soil. Or um, thistles can indicate a magnesium deficiency. So there's lots of different things that observing what's going on or what's on your property can show you and help educate you about your your. Um, ecology that's there. What kind of birds do you see? What kind of wildlife are there? What is the wildlife eating? Um, so you use a lot of that observation and what you're doing with permaculture is taking what's there and making and harnessing the most of it. So if you're using, you know, just 20% of your property, how can you increase that to 30, 40, 50% or more? So when we first started out, we were only using maybe 5%. And now that we're in year 7, we're pretty close to 70%. And that's only because we're rotational grazing and every year we're adding new fencing, new pastures, and new areas. Um, we've added all kinds of different things and a lot of them have experimenting. But when I say some of the type 1 errors, where we put fencing was not ideal. We followed certain contours or existing fence lines, not where we should have been doing it on the contour of the land. So instead of having straight lines everywhere, we would have more curved fencing. But by having a curved fencing that followed the hills and slopes and valleys better, um, so that they were all on the same elevation level. So uh, trying to give a, if you know what a, a topographical map looks like and you have all the little lines that show the different um, elevations or valleys that are in one of those maps. If we were to say take one of those lines and use that as our fence line, well that means it's all going to be on let's say 700 feet above feet sea level. It may not be a straight line. It may be curved. It may go up and in and out, but it's going to be all the same elevation. By doing this and planting trees along those um, fence lines, we can start harvesting more of the water and adding swales, which is a ditch on contour, and capturing more of the water, and not just water, but you got to think of all of the 
waste from the animals. So as the water comes down, it's rinsing off nutrients that those animals have deposited and it's depositing in the low levels in your valleys or it's just washing it off your property. If we were able to capture all of that in the swales, which are, again, ditches on contour, we all of that nutrient would be harnessed there and then feed those trees with all of that extra nutrient. So you're taking a waste, the surplus of the animal waste, and feeding it to the trees to without having to fertilize them. And then all of the excess water, which is, again, a surplus, feeds into those swales and slowly sinks into the ground along with the nutrient feeding the trees which makes them grow better so you see how thinking about these things and what's called function stacking is one of the core pieces of permaculture to me now i'm not saying this is everybody or this is the definition this is just what i take on it and how what i've gained in the years using it um so some other things are, you know, function stacking that we didn't necessarily think about originally. We would fence on the inside of a pasture where the um, the tree line edges were. So all of the brambles, the blackberries, the rose of uh, Rosa Ragosa. That's not the right one. It's a multiflora rose. The wild roses that are out in the woods. Um, the Asian honeysuckle trees and vines, or bushes and vines, the autumn olives, all of these are somewhat invasive uh, species and can take over a woodland, woodland area or at the edge fairly easy. So instead of fencing inside that tree line like we should have done, we fenced in on the pasture side and those things grew further and further until they got to the fence and then started growing up the fence and the fences started sagging. Had we run the fence through the wood line, we would have given shade to our animals. The animals could have eaten all of that down, which we've learned now, um, and then gotten rid of some of those species and made it into a more savanna where the trees are the overstory and grass and things are growing underneath versus all of the bramble and brush. So, you know, had we put fences just, you know, five to ten feet further in, it would have been much better on us. Now we know. Now we fence those areas in, send the goats and sheep and cows in. They eat all of those things down, and then once it gets to just a dried shell of a, of a plant, so they eat all the leaves and basically kill it, so all you're left is the woody material, we'll go in with chainsaws or sawzaws or scythe or you know different, even pruning shears. That's what we started off with because... We didn't have money for some of the other equipment. But um, go in there, take all those out, and then any of the new sprouts, the animals take care of. So we don't have to apply any kind of pesticides, or not pesticides, herbicides, to kill back any of these invasive species. They take care of it all. Now, something else we kind of learned along the way is maybe that's a good thing to have some areas that have those in them because... Uh, the invasive uh, Asian honeysuckle bush is one of the first things that green up in the spring and it's one of the last things that green uh, lose their leaves in the winter. So, you know, that is an uh, easy forage for the goats now, and sheep, but they can only go up so high. Um, the, uh, 
that means we have to feed them hay once they've run out of anything to eat. So we've now rotated to some of the areas and letting that wild areas go longer so that we do have things in the spring, in the summer. We've planned that better so where we rotate them, they still have those things uh, available during those times that we have to feed less hay. So something else that, that's come along this is I should have seen it and I never did. It took somebody who was not, you know, knee deep, or I should say waist deep in some of the stuff that we've been doing. Uh, we had a, a friend come over from NRCS, which is Natural Resources Conservation Service. They're a government agency, and he is a grazing specialist for Indiana to help, you know, he was just coming to visit because we're friends, but then we started talking about farm, he wanted to see what we're doing, he does sheep as well, and we were talking about the hayloft, and that our hayloft really isn't big enough to feed all of our animals over the years, so we had to find some other places to, to put hay, and he says, well, why are you haying in the first place? Because we were at this time, you know, cutting our own hay, and I was complaining about equipment, and nothing ever works, and... Now, what could we better do to some of our hay fields to either get some of the stuff that they won't eat out or, you know, just make improvements for their, their grazing capacity? He goes, well, one, why are you haying these fields versus letting the animals graze it? I'm like, well, that's what everybody does is you put you feed hay to them. And he goes, well, what would happen if you, grate, you know, fenced it instead of grazing or instead of uh, haying it? I'm like, I don't know. What? And he goes, well, one... You're not having to put up uh, some of that hay to use during the, the summer months because they'll be grazing on it. Because we used to leave these pastures um, in order to cut them so the animals would never be on them. And he says, two, what do you have to do every spring? spring? I'm like, uh, I don't know. And he goes, well, where do you feed hay? In the barn? He goes, well, what do you have to do every spring in the barn? I was like, lean out the barn? He goes, yes, all that manure has to go somewhere and you are having to spend the labor doing it. So what if you fed hay in the winter out in the pastures in different spots? They would be depositing all of their waste out there. You wouldn't have to clean it, and you wouldn't have to clean the barn every year. So just by changing the thinking of where you feed the animals. So going back to why we didn't hay, he says, okay, so we're haying on property that we don't technically own. We get to manage it. So, you know, we didn't want to do too many improvements. And he says, well, okay. Your hay fields have been hayed for decades. They're losing nutrients. They're, they're depleted based on the, the plants that I'm seeing. And he says, do you want to spend money putting soil amendments in here? I'm like, well, not really. Because if we put all this money into soil amendments, getting the, the health of the soil back, then you know, what if they say we can't graze it anymore, or we can't do this, we can't use that land, then we've got all that money sunk in there. There's no way to get anything back out of it. He says, well, if they let you hay it, would they let you put fencing up and and graze it? Like, I don't know, probably. He goes, well, use T-posts and woven wire. And he says, if they do have a problem, you can go collect all your T-posts and fencing and you're done. You're not sinking all that money into soil. But I didn't think about that. So by doing that, we ended up getting an extra 20 acres worth of rotating our pastures and actually, after putting the animals on them for two, two seasons, they look way better than they ever have before. So, you know, using the animals to do the work for us and returning that waste back into the soil 
saved us. So our capital investment of fencing ended up, you know, saving us money because now no longer are we paying maintenance on tractor and haying equipment because every stinking year the hay equipment breaks in some way, shape, or form. And it's always when I've got hay on the ground, which means it's going to be raining as soon as the hay equipment goes down, and then the hay is wasted and we've lost all of that. So after three years of haying, I was fed up. We started fencing and never going to look back. I think we have one more section of maybe seven acres, and we've had the complete property next door fenced in. So we went from having one to two pastures to having 20, roughly, that we rotate throughout the year. Now, the reason I'm saying all this is because part of the permaculture principles is letting the animals do the work for you. So what we allow the animals to do is clean out all of our wood line and between using adult goats, we use dairy goats because the surplus from the dairy goats is milk and babies and we can either A, sell the babies or raise the babies up for meat or milk the babies once they get bigger. We can milk the dairy does. So we're getting something out of feeding them the browse, so that's more surplus. Um, and then, sorry, trying to change lanes. Um, you know, another place that we started doing things is sending pigs in. So we've been running pigs in certain pastures if they've noticed that they've been compact or we just want to start over in some of these areas because it's been overgrazed, trampled, or we just need to get a fresh start. And running the pigs in there and then seeing what wild seeds come up gives us a good indication of uh, eliminating some of the problem species that we have and then the pigs get to root around doing their their piggy thing and we'll see what comes up and if it's something that we a don't like or the pasture didn't come out the way we wanted it to as far as you know seeds that came up from the wild we'll send the pigs in for another month let them rototill it all again and then go back and seed something we do want so by allowing the pigs to till up everything we're letting nature see what is ideal there, and based on those plants, we can see, is our soil compacted? Is it neat soil or uh, deficient in something or another? So those things have taught us that using animals to graze and work the land means you don't necessarily need a tractor and all the equipment that goes along with it. And a lot of the permaculture people do this as well. So like with the full-size goats, they'll eat into the trees up to six foot. All the leaves, all of the poison ivy, all of the winter creeper, anything that they can reach six foot and down to oh, maybe 12 inches above the ground, they'll take care of. And they, they'll move around a little bit at a time, and then when new growth comes up, they'll come back to that area. Um, the sheep, on the other hand, eat about 36 inches and down to the dirt. They'll eat all the way down to the dirt. So they'll give us a good clean space to allow things to come back in between uh, growing areas or in, in between rotations. And then the pigs, if we, if we really don't like what's in that area, send the pigs in and they'll uh, till it up. And then with the pigs, 
they're working for us, but then we get the surplus of meat from them or being able to sell the animals. So, um, some of the other permaculture pieces that have really resonated with me is a waste to a resource. So, every waste stream that, that's out there right now can be converted into a resource in some way, shape, or form. So, we were getting... So, here's another example of this, of, you know, the waste of the resource. Um, my name got given to a food bank in Indy about possibly getting rid of some spoiled produce that they were having and bread and things. And I said, yeah, sure, we'll take it. And it started off being maybe a half a pallet or so once a week. Then it became a couple of pallets a week. And now we are up to... I want to say 12 to 14 pallets of food waste a week and it just makes my my mind hurt on how much food was going to the landfill for one reason or another as opposed to turning it into compost or feeding it to livestock or even people. I mean, uh, I want to say probably at least 50% of the food that they're sending to the we're sending to the landfill was still edible by people. Because of their rules and policies, there's certain things that they can't give out for one reason or another. Either it's too close to the expiration or it has expired. And, you know, from my time in pharmaceutical world, expiration dates are kind of subjective a lot of times. Is it the best buy? Is it the freshest buy? Is it the expired buy? And usually a lot of those dates, depending on how they're stored, have a you know a pretty good window past that date. You know some things you can do the smell test of milks and fishes and things that may not be as edible, which they go to the pigs, not a big deal. But other things like cereals, like entire pallets of cereal was going to the landfill because it was too close to the expiration date, um, or like. We just recently got 6,000 pounds of unflavored cake mix. And the whole reason they got rid of it is because it was donated to the food bank as a tax write-off from whatever businesses was using it. And they had uh, five or six pallets of this stuff in 50-pound bags. And they couldn't do anything with it. They can't give it to people who are coming through because through the food lines because nobody knows what to do with 50 pounds of cake mix. The cake mix didn't have instructions, and they couldn't break those bags down into smaller portions and still keep them with all of the labeling and these kinds of things for allergies. So they were just going to dump it, you know, 6,000 pounds of cake mix. So we went and picked it up. We gave it around to different people around our community for free. Had them come pick it up, and, you know, some people bake for the American Legion or bake for different uh, fundraisers and they took those cake mix mixes and made cupcakes and you know, sold them to fund 4-H projects or fund 4-H groups or um, somebody was doing it for cancer treatments for somebody. You know, I, I really don't care where it's going is that somebody got to use it, but that was a waste that we turned into a resource and it, it helped our community by doing that as well. Um, oh, another time we got 10,000 pounds of sugar. And that was because the whoever was getting the sugar rejected it because 
during transport, the sugar absorbed humidity or something, and what once was 50-pound bags of flowing sugar crystals was more solid. I mean, you can break them up fairly easy with a hand or a small hammer, but the whoever was getting it said rejected the the whole batch, saying we can't use it in this form. The sugar company says, well, we don't want it back because we can't reprocess it. You know, don't send it to us. Throw it away. Do whatever you want with it. So the company said, all right, we're going to donate it to the food bank. Well, the food bank can use some of it when they're making meals and things, but not 10,000 pounds. So, again, we got that and sent out messages to my community and in the different networks that I'm in. And I had B groups. Um in, you know, Putnam County Beekeepers Association is the one who came from our local one, and they spread the word to other communities, so we had five different counties beekeeping groups come and pick up entire truckloads of sugar that they were using to make uh, food for the bees, and this is what they would supplement them if they're taking honey or you know, over the winter months or, or whatever so that the bees had more food to eat. On our farm, we don't harvest the honey. We just keep the bees for pollinators. We could, but I'd rather keep the bees than rob the honey and then have them risk starving over winter. So we have a couple of hives. They just do their own thing, and maybe they'll swarm, and we'll get more hives. Don't know, don't care. As long as the bees survive from year to year, they're welcome to stay, and we'll occasionally give them some you know, sugar water and, like, when right now we've had some really weird temperatures over winter and we've had warm days and the bees have become active but there's no flowers or anything for them to eat so they've coming out of the hives looking and nothing is out there so we'll give them some sugar water then at least that's something um, until we start getting flowers on the in the orchards and everywhere else again so you know that's a, a, an example of a waste product into a resource. So what got me on the whole food bank thing is we were getting pallets of all this food and then we had surplus pallets. What do we do with them? Um, So we started using them as building materials. We have pig huts made of pallets and we've now become pallet snobs that we only like certain kinds and styles of pallets for building structures. But we've taken those down and built different structures and houses Uh, we have ram huts so when we separate our rams from the ewes so we can control their breeding cycle they have a a separate barn that's just for the rams and you know if they want to tear it up that's fine it's made of mainly pallets so it's not like it's really going to hurt anything Um, we've taken the pallets apart and used the wood for uh, fencing. We've used it for birdhouses. We've used it for firewood. Um, you know, shingles on the outside, so it's kind of um, kind of like the cedar shingles, but it's out of pallets on different huts for siding because we didn't have we didn't want to go buy metal siding. I mean, there's lots of things you can do with pallets. Um, made, like I said, pig huts or different areas. So if we have a sow that had babies and you know, maybe they're not getting along with the other pigs that are in the, the community, the pig commune, we'll pull them out and have a, make a pig hut for just the mom and put her in a separate area and 
it's pretty easy to go to for a little shanty shack and it's not a lot of money out of our pocket to, to build those things and you know depending on what the pallets are made they might last a year two years three years depends on you know how heavy duty it is if you love elevate them off the ground if you're protecting them from the elements which we've used billboard tarps for so these are the billboards are made out of a use vinyl sometimes reinforced tarps that you see going down the highway we got a truckload of them once and have used them for roofing for sides on barns and windbreaks for the animals so you know the whole turning a waste into a resource is in my mind one of the key principles um you know there's a lot of things that permaculture does that is already you know it integrates some of these things square foot gardening companion planting um you know part of what we do is is building the soil you're not just looking for healthy plants uh you you build the soil and make healthy soil which in turn makes healthy plants so you know it's all connected and and related um you know when we were looking at the water flow from different parts of our property knowing now what we would i wish we would have done then watched everything we put gates and entrances at some of the low points which water collected and they're constantly just a big source of muddy mucky mess and you know that's because we were fencing based on well this looks like a nice square pasture and this is a square one and this one lines up with the existing fence but that's that's not the right mode of thinking we should have been thinking how do we want it to flow how do we want to capture the water and these kinds of things so one of our barns has a fairly large roof on one side it's kind of i don't want to say it's a, we've got like 20 feet on one side and 60 plus on the other side so it's lopsided on both sides of the barn and then we added a lean-to on the back of that as well so we've got probably i don't know 80 feet worth of barn roof 80 by 80 um, space at least it's probably bigger than that probably need to measure sometime well that was a lot of water that was coming off and eroding the back of the hill so you know the longer we went the more we had washouts from the barn and it was always wet back there we were putting rock we were putting tires anything we could to stop the erosion and then it came to us to just put a big stock tank underneath the edge of the roof so as the water comes down it fills the stock tank we don't have to fill it for the animals because every rainfall or even with the dew it'll start filling that tank and you know only in some of the really drier months do we ever have to actually add water to it and by doing that and controlling where the water comes off of that tank we slowed down and stopped the erosion um, something else we had a stockpile of was 55 gallon barrels so we cut those in half and made water troughs that were smaller that the, you know, the younger lambs could drink out of since our bigger stock tank is two feet tall and they can't reach so now we've controlled erosion and supplied water that we don't have to do anything so a lot of the permaculture mindset i should say paradigm is streamlining things so that you're doing less work 
you look at your flow. You look at how many trips do you have to take to the barn where would be a better place for this or for that? Or, you know, how can we make less trips by feeding them in the pasture? Or um, how much can you automate? Or how much can you let gravity flow things? How much can you have a natural system replace and replenish? Um, we have a natural spring that flows out, usually flows out 12 gallons a minute or more. We found out this last year that it does go down to eight gallons a minute when in a drought, but running the animals there in winter ensures that we don't have to break ice or have water heaters because it comes out of the ground at 55 degrees and all they have to do is walk up to the spring and drink out of it. That eliminate us from having to constantly check that the water, the animals have water and breaking ice in the winter and these kinds of things. And all it was was thinking about where you're grazing them at what time of year. So we leave that pasture for the very end, um, November through January, and you know it gets us a pretty good spell of forage for them to eat, as well as a water source that we don't have to manage. Hold on one second, I will be right back. All right, I am back. I had a phone call that I had to address. So we're on our way to pick up spit grain, and I shouldn't say we, it's just me. Um, and that's another waste to resource. So it was the uh, distilling company was having to pay a pretty sizable amount every month to get rid of their distillery race, which is, in this case, uh, purely corn for the most part. And they hated to see it go, mainly because it was hurting their bottom line. And the spit corn, or spit distillery waste, is an excellent source of protein and fiber for the animals, especially the pigs, they love that stuff. 18 to 20 percent, maybe a little bit more. We've not ever had it tested. I'm just going off of what I've seen um, posted online. Protein for the pigs. That means we don't have to have a protein source to feed them, which is not buying pig feed. Now they get all kinds of stuff from the the food bank as well, but you know we're feeding about 20 hogs. At our height, we were doing about 40. Um, about 20 hogs purely on waste products that's from another industry. And it costs us nothing. Well, cost us gas and time to do it. But because of us doing this, and it was such a volume, we got two other farms to also do this. And they're doing about 30 to 40 pigs. I think one of them's up to 80 now. So... You know, we're spreading that around, building community, building food from a waste stream. So then you start thinking about what other waste streams are there? What what waste streams could I take in and manipulate to my advantage? So take something that's either people are paying to get rid of or is free and turn it into something that's a resource. Um, there are certain things that we won't feed the pigs. Mainly it's pork. Um, I try to stay away from anything soy. Uh, occasionally a tofu burger or a tofu cube here or there, but I don't do soy like the, the rest of the industry who do pigs. I find that soy gives the fat profile of the pig a, a completely different texture. The meat is different. Um, I, just, I just don't like feeding them soy. So we found that as you know, 
the food banks and the spit grain as a food source for them. It also feeds our chickens. Um, Black Betty, the fence-jumping cow, the fence-jumping heifer, she gets some of that as well. Um, uh, here's another one. So I'm, what I'm giving you is examples of permaculture so that you can kind of see it's, it's, it's so much bigger. Um, we wanted to start growing some fish. We don't have a pond to grow fish. However, uh, ponds and the like can support more protein production than any amount of land. So you have the water and you know the fish and whatnot or crustaceans that are in there, mollusks. You can grow a lot of food in a body of water. And this and it also changes your your environment, your ecosystem, because you have if it's a pond or a lake, you have reflection off of the sun, so you get different climates around the edge of the pond. You have amphibians who come there and can help with insect control. Uh, there's so many benefits to having a pond, but we didn't have one. What I did find was a super stupid deal on an above-ground pool. 75 bucks for a 15-foot, 4-foot deep above-ground pool. And what I did was fill it up because we're on spring water, so there's no chlorine or chemicals in there, and started stocking it with catfish and bluegill and minnows, and then uh, topped it off with azola, which is a floating water plant, and water hyacinth. Now, the benefit of azola and water hyacinth is it purifies the water. It takes the fish waste, so nitrates and nitrites, and converts them into... And basically, it's a fertilizer for the plant. They go crazy when it's your fish pond is super stocked and a lot of fish waste. Those plants take off. Well, then you have a problem that they start crowding out and they'll choke out the light, which is a good thing because now you don't have an algae problem, which sucks up the oxygen. You also give shade because most ponds are going to be out in our water area, pools in this case, away from trees and things so you're not getting the shade. So it, it chokes a lot of that out. Here's a kicker. Once it gets completely covered on the pool, so you, you can't necessarily see the water, it's all plants, which only take about 30 to 45 days once they get going and the temperatures are above 50. Um, you can start collecting those plants. Well, why would you do that? Azola is a great mineral miner, so all that fish food that you had been feeding them, um, they'll take all of that waste, turn it into available nutrients that plants can get. So you can add that to your soil, you can feed it to the ducks, you can feed it to the chickens, it's got a high protein content, but water hyacinth also has a high uh, protein content. It's even higher than soy. So with that, we've been feeding that to ducks, chickens, pigs, cows, sheep, goats, everything eats water hyacinth. To the point that we harvest it more than it can reproduce, and it can reproduce, I want to say, um, it's like duckweed, and it can almost reproduce double its size in 24 hours. Now these are much bigger plants than duckweed or azola. I didn't mention duckweed before, but duckweed's in the same category as far as protein and purifying the water. Um, but all of those can be fed to either your compost, can be fed to your animals, 
but they clean the water so you're no longer having to have some sort of a filtration system for your 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 fish it gives you a food source for other animals and if you lose some fish here and there which you will you feed those to the chickens ducks and pigs i can tell you what if you have a small kiddie pool like the you know that are like eight to ten inches deep fill that up with water throw some goldfish in there those chickens will love it you'll see them go through that water after them and all of a sudden become kingfisher so if you wanted a, a cheap source of goldfish you can a breed them yourself which you know takes a while or b you go to the pet store pick up a hundred goldfish for twelve forty nine, um, which is what we did we usually use goldfish because they're pretty hardy they poop a lot um, and we use those to get our ponds started. So those are kind of our seed fish. And goldfish will self-regulate that they will only get as big as their water environment will allow them. So if you have them in a tank or whatever, they're only going to get so big. But you put them in a big pond or a, uh, a pool, they'll get the size of koi. Don't put them in any, you know wild or public bodies of water because they'll just keep growing. They're, they can be pretty destructive. I've seen some five and six pound goldfish before from our uh, Department of Natural Resources complaining about goldfish going out. They'll survive winters. They, they're pretty hardy. Um, but so it's function stacking. We took a waste, so a discounted pool that somebody didn't want, added some fish, and now we have a protein source for other animals, a protein source for us by eating the fish, a way to clean the water for the fish. Um, you know, we learned, I talked about this before, one of my lessons learned is we stocked it too heavily, too quickly without having the plants up and going fast enough. So we got a huge nitrogen load and the oxygen got depleted pretty fast because I added I don't know, a couple hundred fish before the water hyacinth got going. So lesson learned. Um, from that we learned we got some cheap solar panels and a deep cycle battery, a trickle charger, and an air pump. And now we pump oxygen in there as well to help them uh, with those stocking densities. Um, you know, every periodically we'll put in a sump pump Again, got at a secondhand store, uh, so like a trash pump or, you know, that you use them for pools or to clean out, um, what do you call them? You have them in your basement. Sumps for, for water. We'll put that in there and use that to irrigate the high tunnel, which we plan to put right beside the pool, so that now we have fish fertilizer waste sucking off the bottom of the pool, feeding all of the plants in the high tunnel. So, you know, again, taking a waste, turning it into a resource. So th there's so many things that, you know, we follow nature and we just step it up a notch. Uh, you know, there's all of these pattern recognitions. So... If you look at how trees fork, it's a lot of the times the same way water tributaries fork. Uh, it's the same way that root structure forks. 
Um, we learned a lot about the soil life from bacterial to fungal life and the different stages and how you know how these systems work together that if you go in every year and you till up your soil you're killing all of the soil life and it takes an entire season for that soil life to come back so if you're tilling your garden every year you're setting yourself back and you're having to always put amendments in there which is something you shouldn't do so instead of tilling how about tarping so get yourself some good quality uh, we use billboard tarps and they're not all created the same because if you get the cheaper ones they end up shredding and you get tons and tons of little fine pieces of plastic what we found works is the heavier duty billboard tarps and I don't know if there's a certain grade or how to categorize them I can just tell you by the weight of them um, you can use uh, old carpet you can use pool liners uh, what we found is EDPM roofing liner um, at our local Habitat for Humanity. Somebody pulled an old roof off, cut it up into 8x8, 10x8, 12x12s, just all kinds of different squares as they took it off the roof and left it there. We picked those up for $3 a piece, and that's what we used on our garden. They're 60 mil thick rubber. No lights getting through it. But what we do at the end of every season is lay all that out over the garden. So we don't pull weeds at the end. We don't pull the old plants. We just chop and drop. So if there was something that was, you know, real woody like plants, like some of our mammoth sunflowers and whatnot, we will cut those down so they lay down, not poke holes. But um, we just lay the, the EDPM on it lays over winter and over the winter that EDPM will heat up in the sun because it's black and all the soil life comes to life so all the microscope microscopic life the bacteria the nematodes the arthropods all of those things come alive under there and start breaking down all of the old plant material the roots the seeds the everything starts getting broken down and when we are ready to plant the next season, we will open up section by section where we're going to plant. So we don't uncover the entire garden. We just uncover the one section that we're going to plant first and then leave everything else tarped until we get to that point. That way, all the other areas don't get a chance to have uh, weed seeds. So it's how you think about things on a bigger scale rather than individuals. So, you know... My old way of thinking was every year you till the garden, you make rows and you plant stuff in usually the same areas. Well, by doing this, you can start propagating diseases because one year you might get blight in your tomatoes and that lives in the soil, or you might get some kind of potato fungus or garlic fungus, and then that stays. So each year we rotate the crops from where they were. So the Tomatoes are not grown in the same spot year after year. Potatoes are not grown in the same spot year after year. And by doing this, it breaks the, the cycle of some of these diseases and even pests. Um, so just some things to think about that, you know, you're, you're thinking on a bigger scale and you're trying to maximize efficiency. What would be easier? Laying some tarp out at the end of the year and walk away and forget it, or getting the tiller out every year, having all of those weeds come back after you till, 
killing your soil life and then having to add amendments every year. Or you put a tarp down and you just go and plant next year. A lot easier to do it that way. A lot of the things that we've done is all about efficiency. I call it because I'm lazy, but you know, really not necessarily lazy. It's just how can we do this with the least amount of effort and let another system work for us? So, um, oh, I could talk about permaculture for like hours and hours and hours. There's so many things that are in permaculture. You know, if this is the first time you've heard about it or if you're interested in it, go do some research. Um, You know, one of the best things, and you know, if you are in an urban area, well, I don't have property. I'm on a suburban lot. Go watch Jeff Lawton's uh, Urban Permaculture. It's free. It's on YouTube. Um, It's about an hour, hour and a half maybe. I haven't watched it in a while. I used to own it um, until the mail lost it when I was mailing it to somebody who wanted to, to try it out. Um, but they're growing thousands of pounds of produce. They're having, you know, some areas have chickens and ducks and rabbits. You can do quail. There's a lot of things you can do in a suburban area. Um, and, and it's function stacking. So, you know, you're, you're growing companion planting. You're using the water from your downspouts to water all of your, your vegetables and your plants. You're using apple trees as lattices for your climbing vines. So, you know, peas or grapes or something. So you're, you're utilizing everything and you start thinking about things. So growing vertically is another one that blew my mind of there's so much wasted space up. Could you do containers? Could you do hanging pots? What can you grow up walls? What can you grow up fences? Can you put pots on top of fences? So, you know, one of the, I want to say was in the urban permaculture video, they were growing up a fence line and then had boxes, planter boxes on top of the fence line. And, you know, within a one square foot space, they were growing five or six different plants. You know, what could you do with that? You know, in our high tunnel, we started growing vertically as well along some of the posts or putting pots um, hanging from the supports. So, you know, that's a piece. There's the herb spirals. There's the seven layers of growing. So in any natural environment, so this is kind of the whole super, I don't want to say super sizing, but what's the word I'm looking for? Super streamlining to what nature does. In nature, you have an upper canopy, a middle canopy, a lower canopy. Then you have a ground layer, a vining layer, a root layer, a mushroom layer. So all of these different things are always found in nature. So nature wants to plug those holes. So if you're not putting something of value in those spots, something else is going to take over. And more than likely, it's something you don't want. So if you're having a problem with, you know, winter creeper or creeping Charlie or poison ivy or wild grapes, that's nature saying we need some sort of a vine here. So maybe you put a cultivated grape. Maybe you put passion fruit. Maybe you do, you know, trumpet vines. You know, it's technically a weed, but I like the way it looks. And the bees and the butterflies seem to like it. Um, You know, hops or something else that is a vine that could be used. Arctic hardy kiwi. 
personally have my issues with Arctic Hardy Kiwi because I don't see that it's worth as much as uh, effort as it takes to grow them. you got five to six years before you get any fruit. They're very heavy. They take over a lot of space. But there's a place for them. I'd rather have Arctic Hardy Kiwi than Poison Ivy growing somewhere. So I have to go pick up my spent grain, but I will be back, so I'm going to pause. All right, everybody, I am back. This is going to be a longer-than-normal podcast because I'm still talking about permaculture, one of my favorite things. We're now on our way home, got our spent grain, our 3,000 pounds of food for the animals, and this will take us to at least another week to feed everybody. Um, so, anyway, back to the permaculture. So, it's not just about food, food production. I mean, that's a main portion of it. But it's also buildings construction. So I don't really go too much into it because we haven't been designing our home because our home already had a, a structure on it to live in. But had I wanted to do it over again, and, you know, let's just say we had a rich uncle, you know, War, Daddy Warbucks who gave us some money, what would we do? We'd buy land, probably where we're at now, and I would say I would build an earthship. If you've never heard of what an earthship is, earthship is another pinnacle of permaculture. Stupid spammers. I should have recorded and got what I say, but I don't have my earpiece in. It's just a microphone. Um, we do all kinds of things with spamming calls. And I'll set the phone down and say I'm going to look for whoever they were asking about. Usually it's me, and I pretend not to be me. I'll go find him. He's in the barn somewhere, and you know, see how long I can keep him on the phone. We likes to talk to him in a demonic voice, tell her that uh, they've reached Satan's hotline. She's here to steal their soul. Usually they hang up right away. Sometimes she'll cuss him out. Sometimes she has fun and see how long she gets to keep him on the phone. Anyway back to permaculture. You know, something shiny, it's me, it's a squirrel. So, um, building design. So you think about, you know, passive solar heating. Where are your windows? Where is your water coming from? If you don't know what an earthship is, there is tons of information out there. And probably one of the best video documentaries I've seen on it is from a channel by a woman named Kirsten Dirksen on YouTube. She has um, a documentary channel, I guess. She's a journalist called Fair Companies. Um, anyway, look up Kirsten Dirksen and Earthship. Uh, I think they're anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour and a half. I love almost all of her videos. She does alternative buildings and um, different types of environmentally friendly stuff or you know, tiny houses or converting the most odd shaped or um, location for buildings into livable houses, uh, transformation, uh, furniture. I mean, all of the stuff she, she does is along the whole permaculture mindset, but she never uses the term. She's interviewed some people who talk about permaculture, but she herself has not actively uh, talked about it. <clears throat> She usually lets the other people do the talking. She just asks questions about what's going on. But if I had to do it over, I would build an earthship. 
So an Earthship uses passive heating and cooling. It's built into usually the side of a hill. You use recycled tires and rammed earth as part of your building. You have indoor growing areas. You recycle all of your gray and black water. Um, I mean, it's just phenomenal how much function stacking um, they have in these Earthships. Um, the guy who designs them and builds them, he's kind of, uh, he's out there in some cases, but his mind's, you know, the why he's doing it and how he's doing it and that you, you have to build it by hand and have a community effort and this and that. Granted, you might need to because I can tell you building them uh, one by yourself will take you forever. Now, you can use some technology and tools to speed up the process, but... That's the kind of home I would use. I mean, it uses a lot of native materials, a lot of things that are waste materials that you turn into resources. Um, you have very minimal heating and cooling. Your water is all harvested from rainwater, or you're using your gray water to water your plants that are in the house that you, in turn, are eating from that help purify the air. Phenomenal stuff. Um, we don't do enough talking about earthships. <clears throat> Um, but that's, that's part of it as well as, you know, these, what I call them the vinyl villages, where they bulldoze a, a row crop field, no trees, nothing else, scrape all the topsoil off, put up a bunch of cookie cutter houses that look all alike. They may change color, they may change slight design, but for the most part, they're all the same. And, you know, then they put in all of these junk trees like your, um, oh, what kind of pear they are. It's the, the flowering pear. Bartlett pear? No. Bradford pear? One of those. And they're very weak. They usually fall over and break off after a couple of years from wind damage. All of the trees are usually having to be staked. And you have no old growth. The wind whips through them. The wind whips through the, the vinyl siding. And, you know, it just... I don't like those kind of building areas, personally. Um, I don't want to say I lived in one, but we've been there before. Um, but you think about having larger windows, if you're where I'm at in North America, you have larger windows south-facing. And if you can, you put deciduous trees... Um, in front of those so that when the summer's there the leaves block out the light and you have a lot of natural light coming in through those big windows and then in winter when the leaves fall off the trees the sun gets through and can heat the house up so it's function stacking um you know just some of those kinds of thought processes when you're building your house would be great don't get me wrong uh, you know our house is is fairly nice and decent and sorry somebody was I'm losing some of my spent spilt spent grain out the back of the truck as I'm going through downtown Indy because it was really overfilled and people don't like driving behind me that's their problem anyway um uh you know where our house is positioned it's uphill from our water source, which is a spring. So we're having to pump that water up. What would be nice is to have our water source above the house 
and have gravity fed so that even if we lose power, we still have water coming to the house and have the ability to flush toilets or water livestock and whatnot. So we are working on a plan to use a solar pump to pump the water from our cistern currently that comes out from the spring and pump it up to a much bigger cistern up on top of a hill above our house and any of the overflow from that once it gets full will feed into livestock troughs so gravity feeding everything in theory in my mind it works but we have to get some infrastructure in place and these are some of those type one errors of where buildings are where fencing is because the water lines that I need to go from my uphill cistern go through multiple fence lines goes across where we have our small koi pond duck pond area so it creates a bigger issue and you know because we've put fencing and trees and plants and things there it's much uh, a tighter space so we're having to limit what kind of equipment we can do and I'm not particularly wanting to hand dig water lines and electric lines through all of that three plus feet down because that's where our frost line is in Indiana um, you know so there's those kinds of things there's waste stream handling there's community building and you know something that they started off way back when in permaculture is the the sense of credits so that you're not using fiat currency or the current money system it'd be equivalent to using say bitcoin or something and your vested interest in it is how much you contribute to your community so some of those kinds of things are our permaculture practices now i have the permaculture designers manual by bill mollison and it is not something you can sit down and read it's not something i would recommend to anybody unless you've been through permaculture training because it is like a textbook manual for engineering it's it's very detailed it talks i don't say high level because i guess you could understand it but it, it's like a textbook now some of the other people i've mentioned like um mark shepherd his book restoration agriculture it's a little more easy to follow he, he, while he's doing permaculture principles he doesn't necessarily call it permaculture a lot of the wet time um ben falk has a book i've never not had his um there's uh, Richard Perkins has two pretty good books, and we own both of them. Um, his first one is uh, How to Make Money Using Permaculture. So he goes through, um, he is permaculture-esque, but he's a market farm. He does a lot of things. He is, oh, I want to say in Sweden, somewhere up there, cold area. He does market gardening, um, but he lays his entire operation out in his book about what everything costs to run it, to set it up, how much he's getting on return, what's his return on investment, how long it takes. And some of his numbers blew me away. I was thinking, you know, from our point of view and our scale, what would make money? And some of the simplest things make the biggest money with the least amount of investment one of those being tree starts or plant starts um, makes tons of money 
for little investment of just starting trees because people don't want to do it. Um, or they'd rather have three to four year old trees versus, you know, saplings. Well, it takes time and they don't want to wait the three to four years. So if you start that three to four years, you can sell a, a fruit tree for 20 to $40, you know, just by letting it set it and forget it pretty much. You put it in a pot, water it every once in a while, uh, keep it pruned back or keep it alive. And before long, you start having a regular season of crop of fruit trees that cost you little to nothing to start. So, um, some other things that are like that that he he went into were mushroom growing. Something I wouldn't have thought would be as hugely um, profitable as he did. But he's growing them in shipping containers. He can control control the moisture. He can control the humidity. Uh, moisture is the humidity, but the light levels uh, grows them in six foot sacks stuffed with straw, and you know little investment little work maintaining it you know he also goes into how much time he puts in or his staff puts into each one of these endeavors it's really number driven it's uh something that a buddy of mine darby simpson he uh you say excel never lies which when you start putting in your numbers it doesn't and that's something that a lot of people who are you know they recently get you know two or three acres and what can they do to start making their property pay well, you're not going to pay your property off with a dozen eggs a week at three or four dollars a dozen. Yes, I mean right now, eggs and things are eight dollars a dozen in some of the stores. But again, you're not going to pay off your mortgage that way. Could you probably pay for your egg bill? Maybe depends on how many chickens you run. Um, I mean, everything is is not necessarily scalable either I've learned with permaculture um, and I learned that from both in permaculture and through working with punk rock farmer Jonathan Lawler he runs 30-40 acres of produce production and so we're talking let's say 5 or 10 acres of watermelons or cantaloupes or tomatoes or peppers you know what you do there versus your own backyard garden are not the same. Um, how you harvest it, how you plant it, how you weed it, how you irrigate it, it it's different. And in most cases, I've not seen any permaculture farms bigger than 10 acres. I mean, we are a, a permaculture farm, per, per se, but we're also running a lot more livestock um, we're probably 50 plus percent of our own food that we generate. We'd ideally like to be more. We do sell the overage, but you know, if we really, really were function stacking, we could probably up that to 70 to 90 percent of our property and uh, food being produced here. But it's only one possible one and a half two people because senior farm boss works off farm i mean she is on farm working from home but you know she's not there doing the livestock harvesting and things she's only got so many hours in a day that she can dedicate to the farm got junior farm boss who can do a lot but she also has 
homeschool and there's some things that she physically can't do. There's some things that I have to do that I can't dedicate to food production. So, you know, could we take on people? Yeah, but people won't do it the way that I want it to be done. And I'm much easier to do it on my own than watch somebody struggle to do it and then it takes it five times as long because they don't know what they're doing and me having to sit there and watch them, that's two people's energy wasted to do one task. So, it you know, we get offers all the time. Can I come work? Can I come learn? Yeah, but I, I, I'm not good to work with. Uh, there's lots of profanities. We wild woman has more profanities than I do. She gets tired of people asking dumb questions such as, well, where does the chicken nuggets come from on a chicken? Or they just want to come and see the baby goats and play with the baby goats and feed the baby goats. Well, there's other things to do like muck and stalls, like, you know, um, weeding gardens, things that people don't want to do because it's not the fun jobs, but that's the, usually the things that take the most time to do. That's where you need the most help. Kind of digressing off the whole permaculture thing. What I'm saying is there's a lot of things out there to learn and gather and put together that it's, it, it took me oh I took a class it was uh, it was scheduled of 72 hours worth of training just in the videos then there was another 70 hours of question and answers that I went through and then even then I, I didn't know what I didn't know and so what may work on my farm may not work on yours you may not have the right management style you may not have the right soil you might be in a different grow zone um, you know even on our own property we have different places where some things do really well and some things don't and it could be soil it could be you know because of the hungry hungry horde which is the goats and sheep that will get out and they've ended up decimating some of our, our tree plants so we need a better management style for them. And until we can get a better management style to keep them off of the trees, can't let trees grow up to, to full potential. So we're having to do that in sections. So we have the forbidden zone, which no animals are allowed in. And that's where a lot of our berry bushes and tree fruit trees and strawberry plants and those kinds of things are. And the problem is, we get lots of grass growing. So how are we going to keep the grass out? So is that mowing it? We can't get a mower because we have such densely planted areas. Um, we're working on slowly converting all of the grass into edible plants or something that will feed the bees or pollinators. But that takes time. So we're not made of money and we do it a little bit here and a little bit there as we can. Um, we have an orchard that we had to fence off then electrify because every time we seem to spend any money on fruit trees the damned goats go in there and decimate everything before we ever can get the trees established and they end up killing them so we've made this mistake several times of putting trees in different areas and then the animals either get into there somehow or we didn't fence them off enough that they can push down fences, go around fences, go under fences, go over fences. So our management style didn't work. But just because it doesn't work in our place might not mean that you don't have it. Maybe you don't have a hungry, hungry horde and you could plant as many trees as you want, get them established, then bring livestock in. That would be better looking in hindsight. Um, but then you've got to, you know, in our case, we had to mow all those pastures. 
So our first year, we used push mowers to mow seven acres. Let me tell you, that was not fun. And we did it once the mowing, it was so tall that we would only have to go at a snail's pace, otherwise it would bog down the mowers. Then we got more grazers who took care of it. Well then, they were eating so much that they ran out of pasture. So we needed to make more pasture for them, which meant we got more animals because we had more pasture. And so it was a cycle. Looking back, if we had 20-20 vision when we started and knew what we were going to do, I would have maybe bought a zero-turn mower as opposed to our big tractor and planted a lot of my fruit and nut trees before we ever got livestock. I mean, chickens, ducks, geese, rabbits, fine. But none of the sheep, goats, cows, horses. Oh yeah, horses will eat your, your fruit trees as well. Um, that being said, you know, if you are just starting out, think about that. Everybody wants to get livestock first. It depends on what your end goals are. You get livestock first, your trees are going to suffer if you ever wanted to do an orchard. Or you have to keep them separate and then you have to mow the orchard. Another problem, you know, misconception or what people do, and I think is a mistake, is as soon as they get property, they think that they need to go spend twenty to $50,000 on a tractor. We didn't have a tractor for the first three or four years that we lived on this property and the only reason we got one was because the guy who was cutting hay for us said he was going to stop doing it and we had less than two months before we needed to cut the hay and we didn't have a tractor nor did we have any way to mow 20 plus acres so we had to go get a used tractor which probably it was okay when we bought it it's you've got tractor maintenance you've got I never had a tractor before, so learning curve of how to use it. And was it the right, tri right tractor with the right implements for what we needed at the time? And kind of, sort of, not really. You know, the hay equipment worked, but uh, some of it was older than my wife and I combined. So you're talking 80 years old. And there's, you can't find parts for some of those things that are that old. And there's always something that's breaking or going wrong or not just perfectly aligned. And if you do get the tractor, the cutter, the baler, everything working the way it's supposed to, and you're getting to the point where you can get hay, something's going to break or it's going to rain and you lose all of that. So it just never fails. That's why I hate doing hay. We haven't done hay in two years, three years never going to look back, never going to do hay again. Uh, my NRCS friend, when he came, he says, you know, there's a certain point where doing your own hay makes sense, and there's a certain point where buying hay makes more sense. And he says, it's up to you to decide where that is, and, you know, it depends on how productive your hay fields are, what kind of livestock you have, how much that livestock is eating, what are the nutritional needs of that livestock, because a sheep's uh, nutritional needs are different than a dairy goat, are different than a cow, a meat cow is different than a dairy cow, is different than a horse. So, you know, all of those things factored into it, you know, what do you, you need for your hay? For me, I wanna say, personally, 
20 acres is about the point. If you've got more than 20 acres of pasture to maintain, haying it might make sense if you have smaller livestock and you don't have the ability to rotate them regularly. So if you were, if it were me in my circumstance, and let's just say you have 40 acres, so you're over that 20 acre threshold, most of it is or was in row crop or was in pasture before. Before I spent twenty to $50,000 on a tractor, I'd fence the external perimeter in with uh, good quality fencing. And if you could hire somebody, we chose to do it ourselves. Yes, we learned some lessons. Yes, we didn't do it the right way. Yes, we made some financial mistakes by buying cheaper fence. T-posts were too far away. We didn't stretch the fence. Would we have made up the difference in our lessons learned by having somebody, paying somebody to do the fence? One, it would have been quicker. But two, some of the quotes I'm looking at for that amounts of fencing, so just the external perimeter fence for 40 acres, we're talking $20,000. I mean, at that point, you're getting a tractor just for the external. That's none of the internal fencing or water lines or gates or these kinds of things. And what we ended up doing, we learned this kind of, I'll say the hard way, is instead of buying a roll of fence here or there as you, you need it, planning out your projects and buying in bulk and getting a discount. So at our particular tractor supply, uh, 11 rolls, maybe 10 rolls, 10 rolls of fence I think is where the discount comes in. Um, and we buy... We've changed what we bought, but now we buy 48-inch fence, woven field fence with 10-gauge top and bottom wires. And that's important because the goats want to go over the fence. The sheep want to go under the fence because they don't jump. And so the, sheep, the goats will walk the fence down, jump it. They lower it enough that the sheep then can either jump it or they lose the integrity that the sheep can now go under the fence in different places. So, you need to put your posts in at the right... We use T-posts as well. And both T-posts and wooden posts, um, they're at bulk discount. I want to say it's 400 at our tractor supply for T-posts. We haven't bought the wooden post because we don't have a wooden post fence post driver. We did not have an auger at the time to dig fence posts. And I wasn't digging all those by hand. It's too much time. With a steel T-post, you can get a T-post pounder, like 30 bucks, and away you go. You just drive them into the ground. They're fairly easy to pull back up when you need to adjust something or, you know, move fencing because you did a Type 1 error like we did. I would fence the area in, do it myself, probably work with somebody, like I worked with Darby installing fence. He uses a different type of fence, but I learned a lot of lessons on what to do, what not to do, what I liked, what I didn't like. Um, just from being his hands, you know, that was helping him pull wire, run insulators, um, stretch wire, those kinds of things. Stretching is a whole nother piece that you know, we did the wrong way as well. Um, it also depends on what kind of livestock you're going to be keeping. Are you going to be keeping cows? Are you going to be keeping goats? What size goats? Um, Full-size goats or the, you know, 
Nigerian dwarf type goats, the minis. Um, are you going to do sheep? What kind of sheep? Hair sheep or wool sheep? And, you know, all of those things should be factored into what kind of fencing. If you say you don't know, you want to do everything, well, then you should do a fence that does everything. Um, wool sheep, you can't do barbed wire because their wool will get caught in the barbed wire and they'll get hung up. The more they struggle, the more they get tangled, and then they end up dying. So barbed wire is not your friend anywhere where a sheep can get to it. Cows will jump just a woven wire. you got to put a hot wire or barbed wire across the top, which will keep cows and or goats from jumping in the most part. Um, you know, a lot of people want to do the Nigerian dwarfs type goats because they're smaller, they eat less, they're easy to handle, you can do more in, a, in an area. Yeah, but they also got itty bitty teeties. So, you know, you're talking with the teats to milk, it's a two finger milker, unless you either build or buy a milker. And, you know, using two fingers to milk, you definitely get hand cramps if you're doing it by hand. Um, for a while, we built our own milker, and we have full-size goats. And even then, the teats aren't necessarily the biggest. And uh, wife didn't like it, so she bought her own uh, battery-powered milker. She loves it. She can do, like, a gallon in this particular milker. But if you're doing a cow, completely different story. You can't use that. Um, you know, if you're doing horses, that's a different fence. Cows and horses can be held in with barbed wire. The other animals cannot. We learned that the hard way. You can electrify it. Uh, Greg Judy does single wire electric fence with his sheep. And he does hair sheep. Whether that's his management style, his culling practices, whatever, it works for him. Sure as shit did not work for us. We went to four strands of hot wire. Could not keep the sheep in. One, we didn't stretch it. Two, um, the sheep with their big wool coats will like kind of it's funny they kind of back up they stump their legs and they just bolt through it as fast as they can they may get shocked they may not but either way they made it through with one pop and then they don't want to go back in because if they did get shocked they're done wool sheep you got to get them on the face or the nose or maybe their legs but you're not going to hit them with with most of the cases with electric fence so um Sometimes electric netting works. We have not had success with electric netting. We have killed a couple of sheep with electric netting. And not because they got electrocuted, it's because they just got tangled up and ended up strangled themselves in it. Um, we weren't, the fence wasn't even on at the time and they got tangled up and died. So, you know, we've tried electric netting. That doesn't work. They either get tangled and then when they get shocked, they freak out. They get even more tangled. So, you know, that poor sheep who had that happen doesn't like the electric netting, but it, it just didn't work for us. A lot of people it does work for. A lot of people can use electric netting with pigs and sheep and it just and goats and chickens. It just hasn't worked for us. So, just because it works for some people doesn't mean it works for everybody. You have to find your own style, and sometimes that's trial and error. Sometimes that's visiting other farms. The best thing I can say is start visiting other people's farms. See what works. See what doesn't. See what you like. See what you don't like. Um, uh, you know, we went to a couple of farms, and while they said that they had pasture pigs, the pigs were essentially in a confined area in the woods, which 
they ended up having just this big, nasty stink hole of a mess that was liquid slurry. We, on the other hand, have moved our pigs. Now, they ought, they were in an area for almost recycled pigs, but two years, but it was two and a half acres in the woods. So, you know, we, and it was way far away. You don't want to put pigs close by your house or by your barn where you're going to be smelling them every day. Even if they're in a pasture-based system, eventually they do stink. So you need to let that area rest for a while. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of way going off on a big tangent about things we've learned the hard way. And, you know, what the permaculture, you know, type pieces mean. So, you know, watching some of Jeff's videos, he does use heavy machinery. He'll use heavy machinery to make ponds. He'll use them to make swales. Sometimes they do use tractors to mow down an area. Usually he likes to use the animals. Um, we didn't have, you know, we had the tractor, which we haven't used in three years. We need to get rid of it, fix it up, get rid of it. What we actually found was a zero turn has been kind of a lifesaver or, you know, a little yard tractor, which we used for a couple of years till it finally died, a little wheel horse. So with the zero turn, one, it's faster mowing than like a little yard tractor would. But if you have a yard tractor, use a yard tractor. What we found is we put, uh, we got a, somewhere we got a little two-wheel trailer, hooked it up to the zero turn, put uh, pallet um, IBC totes, either the cages or just the metal bottom piece on it and tied it to the pallet or to the trailer and we use that to move things around the farm, whether that's uh, feeding for animals, whether that's picking up wood in the for firewood out in the woods of down trees and, and branches and things, or um, mowing pastures. So we thought that the sheep and the goats and the cows would take care of pastures that were overgrown. So when we start taking over a new pasture that hasn't had any animals on it, it could be anywhere from knee high to shoulder high. And, you know, we thought we'd just turn them out there and they'd start eating. Not the case. They'll eat some stuff, they'll make trails, but they will not eat it down like we were hoping they would. And the reason being is that it doesn't taste good anymore. When things, when some of those plants and um, woody material gets too tall, they don't like it anymore. They like the new growth as we wild women calls it, the candy grass. So um, both Joel Salatin and, um, well, I just said his name, I can't remember it now, about who does the hairless sheep. Anyway, it'll come to me. Um, they have different grass lengths and when you want to eat it. You, know, you got adult grass, you got teenager grass, and you got baby grass. And it's all about the length of it and how long it takes to come back. But what we found that the sheep, the goats, the cow, and the horses all love the newest growth. And so what we did with that zero turn was we would go blaze a trail uh, where we wanted to fence in. We'd go put our posts, put our um, fencing up, stretch it, put our barbed wire across the top and then let the animals go in. Now, they'll go in and eat a lot of stuff. They take a lot of it. They trample a lot. 
But then once they're done with it, they really don't like too much anymore, we'll go in with the zero turn and mow everything down to as high as that setting will go, which is about six inches. So that's saplings, that's young trees, everything gets mowed. And then when new growth starts coming back in about two to three months, we send them back in there. And then any of the saplings, the blackberry brambles, the wild rose, they've taken that out a second or third time. And so the plant has used all of its uh, reserves that were in the root system to try and put out new growth and they end up dying. The things that are meant to be grazed, the grasses, the clovers, the alfalfa, the legumes, uh, plantains, those kinds of things, they thrive on getting mowed every so often. So that's essentially what you're doing is, if the animals won't do it, you need to do that job. So that's mowing it. And you know, once we get a pasture that's established with regular rotation, we never really have to mow it again. Now, sometimes if we let it go, we're gonna let it rest, or we had fencing issues we couldn't get to, and it gets too far gone, we will mow it, but that zero turn has done it for us. Um, there's another waste resource that just hit me, was we have a deal with one of our local tree services um, that they come and they drop wood chips and logs on the property. We have a separate entrance just for them. And then there's our firewood. We never have to go cut a tree on our property for firewood again. We have probably two acres of stored up logs just waiting to turn into firewood. And that's how we heat both our domestic hot water and heat the house in winter. Um, we're looking at possibly using that to heat a high tunnel or another building uh, coming up using an outdoor wood boiler. So we're turning a waste into a resource. And a lot of these trees are diseased, damaged, um, they're too close to buildings or whatever, so they're coming down. And rather than going to a landfill or somewhere else, they, they drop them off there. And when the tree service has to drop them off somewhere other than our property, they have to pay to get rid of them. So it's saving them money, giving us a resource that we don't have to uh, do extra work for, and it all ends up working out in the end. So, you know, kind of recapping on things I would have done differently had I known what I know now. One is observe our land for a year and you know do maybe put in a garden but maybe that's not the final home of a garden um, i would have put our garden closer to our house which we are working on we're moving things that way but you know if you put your your garden in the back 40 as far away which is where a lot of people do them away from the house you don't visit it as often put your garden right next to your house so every day you're walking by it Put your garden on your way to your chicken coop so as you're going you maybe pick up some weeds or pick up some plants that have gone too far along and gone to seed gone to flower gone whatever feed that to your chickens along the way the chickens are getting fresh vegetables you're taking care of part of your problem and it's turning a waste into a resource for your birds um you know there's a the whole permaculture piece there's zones so you have zone uh, zero through five. Zone zero is your house, it's where you live. Zone one is where you visit every single day. It's usually your back door and probably 20-ish feet around the house. And do you always go around to the back side of your house? Probably not. 
then don't put something back there. Put things closer where you walk every day. You're more likely to see when plants are, you know, produce is ripe, what weeds are going on, what pests or, you know, diseases are there because you're looking at it every single day. Zone two is you're, you're visiting less frequently. Zone three is maybe your orchard where you visit it maybe once or twice a year. Maybe more, maybe less. Zone four is something you visit maybe once a year. Maybe that's a, a wooded area and you go collect woods out there. Maybe that's your, your nut crop and you go, you know, when the nuts fall in the fall, that's the only time you ever go out there. Or maybe you visit it just to mow in between the trees. Or and if you're not mowing, you're sending out the animals to graze that area to keep back the weeds and the brush. Um, then you have zone five, which is your wild area, which is untouched. And everywhere needs to have a little bit of wild area. And that's for nature to just do its own thing. And, and we have some areas that are like that out in the woods. We don't touch it. We don't graze it. It's on the other sides of fences, so our grazers can't get there. And that's like a deer super highway back there. So they will jump our fence. They can easily cross our fence. But for the most part, they just travel along the backside of the fence um, since our grazers are usually taking care, care of everything inside the fence. Um, we have different pockets here and there of just wild stuff. And for the most part, we don't touch it. We might take goats out there with us on a walk or whatever, and the goats kind of trim some things back. It's a nice treat. They're getting some things that they usually don't get in their um, different pastures where they're at. But you design your property about where you're going to be traveling the most. So if you are, have a barn, plant between your house and your barn. That's your garden. Have a walkway that's something that's edible. If you're taking something from that area to your animals or on your way back from tending to your animals, you're bringing something back to the house. And, you know, those are some of the things that I wish we would have done differently and, you know, looking back that maybe you won't make the same mistakes. Um, not getting all the animals at first. So, <laughs> we did what we tell everybody not to do now, which is get a little bit of everything and see what you like. So, when we first started out, we got everything that we possibly could and learned the hard way. Not everything is the same. Not everything gets along. Lots of different illnesses and diseases that are between the animals or unique to the different animals. Uh, we kind of got everything through it against the wall and saw what stuck. Uh, originally, I was gung-ho for goats, dairy goats, because you know six goats can graze in the same area as a cow, and they'll eat all the browse and the brush and the poison ivy, and we had lots of that when we bought the property. I hate goats now. I wouldn't want goats if I had to. The only reason we have goats is because my wife and junior farm boss like the goats, and some of them are pets. That's another thing. If you start putting names on things, they're no longer livestock, they're pets. And then you become feeding pets rather than letting the livestock work for you or you eating the, the livestock. Which is not a bad thing, but if it's pets and you're having to buy feed for these, or as they get older, special feed that's more expensive because you just can't let them go. Sometimes you got to be able to pull the trigger and, you know, you know the lamb, the, the sheep, the, the goat, whoever needs to go for processing. Um, unfortunately, we have a lot of those pets that just, they're going to end up dying here and we'll end up burying them somewhere and they're not going to go for meat. 
and it's a problem with having where we are of having pets versus livestock so you need to think about that as are you going to get too attached to some of these animals uh, we thought we were with rabbits and we did have the breeders that had names and were pets and those were hard to see them go when we finally got rid of rabbits but don't give them a name there you are you know we gave them names of meat pork chop and those kinds of things um and if you needed to name them and be able to talk about them name them some sort of food item because that's where they're going to be destined to go um you know beware of free animals or livestock auctions because we ended up taking in a bunch of animals that they the owner was running some sort of haphazard animal rescue and she had all kinds of health issues her partner bailed on her she couldn't afford nor could she physically take care of them anymore and they needed to go to new homes and what we originally wanted was one male goat that was an Oberhosley full I mean he was massive he was probably 300 plus pounds um, big four foot horns huge but he was scared of everything um, he had never been handled was living in the streets of Indy for a while it took like a month for them to end up capturing him came to live in her house she had eight foot like high fences all around him and he pretty much stayed by himself the whole time um, came to our house he was super hard to contain was not personable ended up escaping and just living in the woods for a while i mean we're talking like a year we'd see him every once in a while we'd try to get him to come out with food he'd come up close to us but wouldn't come close enough that we could capture him and then he he died somehow we don't know we think maybe he got tangled up in some old fencing that was in the woods or barbed wire or something but he ended up dying in the woods and we couldn't do anything about it but with him she's like hey we've got all these other goats we need to rehome do you want these guys too and we were just starting out sure why not and supposedly all these goats were fixed meaning they couldn't have any babies yeah yeah the vet came out and crushed their testicles with this you know special device okay we didn't know enough at that time we believed her the vet came out and did all this every damn one of those goats got in and impregnated all of our dairy goats so we no longer had pure dairy goats we had this mutt breed they were all horny they were all stinking because male goats pee all over their face they destroyed every gate every fence every enclosure to get to the girls some of these goats were 300 pounds some of our littler goats were not big enough they were ended up killing some of our goats it just sucked so that was the last time i was ever able to authorize any new animals to the farm because of this fiasco along with those goats came eight alpacas we'd never had alpacas before um and two llamas so now the llamas came from somebody else the llamas were a good deal they were just old 4-h retiring llamas and for the first year they hated me they loved my wife at some point they changed they loved me i could go out there and rub on them hand feed them and everything they'd spit at her every time she came around so weird dynamic with the llamas i do miss the llamas i actually liked the llamas the alpacas never listen to anybody say alpacas are guard animals 
They are the dumbest bunch of animals. I despise them more than I despise goats. And they're prey animals. They are not lovey. They are not affectionate. They're all poofy and whatnot, but they hate for you to touch them. They'll run from you. They spit. They have to have their toenails clipped. You have to shear them every year. They Everything wants to kill them, including themselves. They will stick them their heads into an opening, then not be able to figure out how to get it back out, flip out, and break their own necks trying to get out. They, you know... They will electrocute themselves. They will, from chewing on power cords, they are very susceptible to worms. They are very susceptible to all kinds of illnesses. I despise alpacas. So out of the eight that we had, one was an intact male. We don't think that he ever got anybody. But then um, they are, their breeding time Basically, their gestation, that's the word I'm looking for, is roughly a year. So you get them pregnant, and that's a whole feat because they don't necessarily want to get bred. There's lots of, you know, keeping them contained or, I don't want to say forcing it, but you got to halter one while the male does his thing. He's got uh, guard teeth that are sharp and can... You know, do some serious damage. I mean, they're almost like canine teeth. They're pointy. They're fighting teeth. If they haven't been cut, then you have lots of spitting. And it's not like a normal human spit. We're talking thick, sticky, partially digested, fermented hay or grass that sticks to you. It smells. It's nasty, especially if they get it in your beard. If you have a beard, ladies, if you have a beard, you know, you want to keep your beard clean, uh, or hair, or clothes, and just alpacas suck. Anyway, some people like them. Not for us. Some people love goats. No. My wife and the daughter love the goats. I hate the goats because they're always out. They're always not where they're supposed to be. They destroy fences. They destroy trees. They will poop in their own water bucket and then refuse to drink the water because they pooped in it. And we're talking like, you know, they literally, we have it to the point where they literally have to walk up, back up, hang their butt into an opening to poop in the bucket, and they still manage to do it. They will pee on the hay that they are given to eat, then refuse to eat it. They will walk on the hay that they were given to eat, and they will refuse to eat it. This is including in putting them in hay feeders. I I just don't get goats. They will waste more hay by pulling it out messing around with it, and then once it touches the ground, they don't like it. It, it, It's yucky. It touched the ground. We're not going to eat it. And they really will starve themselves to death with hay on the ground because they just won't eat it because it touched the ground, they peed on it, or somebody else looked at it wrong. Can you tell I don't like goats and alpacas? Um, So anyway, the eight alpacas, we have one left, and she is like, I don't know. She is like super alpaca. She's not the friendliest. She will eat out of my hand now. She hasn't spit on anybody in a good two years. We haven't shorn her in two years, but it doesn't seem to bother her any. Um, She thinks she's a sheep. She walks with a sheep. She lives with a sheep. Um, But, you know, she's managed to survive meningeal worm. I mean, she's, she's like a tank. I don't think she'll ever die. But she, out of the eight nine. She's the only survivor. 
Um, Minigeal worm is another thing we had no knowledge of. Oh yeah, before you get any livestock, research the livestock. Everything you need to know, diseases. Um, don't go to an auction or don't go pick up. Somebody had a free goat and then like, well, how do I keep it? How do I keep it? What can I feed my goat? I see this in all of the homesteading and livestock pages and it just, it burns my ass. I used to get on these pages and, and wonder why so many people are rude and, and give shitty comments or, you know, what not to people starting out. So I, I read a lot before I posted a lot. Now I understand why they did it because you don't go get five goats from an auction and then wonder why there's all kinds of ooze and disease and why they're sick because somebody else unloaded them at an auction and you now got their problem animals. I know, I know. I'm going to homesteading and things we learned the hard way versus permaculture, but this is kind of part of it. You know, understanding what you're getting, the meds, the, the necessary equipment for them before you get it. Um, I wish I would have not gotten animals as soon as we did, but yet it's inevitable. You get land, you get a chance from going from suburbia where you couldn't have anything, and now you want everything all at once. Take your time. There'll be time. But, you know, if you want fruit trees, sometimes it takes five to ten years to get fruit, depending on the size you get them. So if that's what you want, put the fruit trees in first. Don't get the animals first because then they'll eat all your fruit trees and you won't get any fruit ever. Um, you know, talking with somebody and going to see other properties or having them, somebody who has some experience, coming to look at your property with you, walk it with you, great. The, um, having a permaculture consultant come out, which, you know, I do that, not advertising that I'm doing that, trying to push that, but. Now, having somebody who's been in the weeds, who's made type 1 mistakes, who you could learn from lessons they learned the hard way, have them. Get a mentor. If you're new to sheep, find somebody in your area that does sheep and does it the way you want. We have lots of sheep people around us. Not a lot of wool sheep people around us. They're all commercial meat sheep or 4-H sheep or show sheep. And, you know, that wasn't what we wanted to do. We did not want to have the pedigreed sheep and the just for meat. We didn't want to have hair sheep. We wanted to have wool because here's one of the reasons why we chose what we did. Maybe this will make sense to you. Maybe it won't. If you don't want to shear sheep, get hairless sheep. Hairless sheep are not necessarily as rugged as wool sheep. Um, you know, learn your breed. Get good quality stock from somebody. Uh, learn what is good quality stock. Learn what somebody thinks that their stock is worth may not be really what it's worth. Now, I see people putting on sheep for $400 for a ewe or a ram, and I wouldn't pay $400 for it. We sell some of ours for stupid cheap because either we have too many or we've been in where their situation is and where they are just getting started and paying $400 for one animal or you could get 10 animals for $400, which would you rather do? So, you know, yes, you want to pay cheaper for it, but you also get what you pay for. And we wouldn't turn sheep over to people who have never had it without actually coming and learning and asking them questions about what they're getting into because if their poor management or they don't understand what they're getting into comes back at us you sold us six sheep well 
No, you fed them the wrong things. You gave them grain and they've never had grain before. So you killed your sheep by feeding them the wrong stuff. Oh, we don't have pasture yet. Well, that would have been important before you got sheep, wouldn't it? So some of those kinds of mistakes, um, finding a mentor, finding a mentor for permaculture, finding a mentor for regenerative grazing, you know, finding somebody who can do these things. And how do you find those people? It's a good question. Friends, family, um, you know, we have some friends who mean all the well and try to tell us and what they would do, but that's how they would do it. That's not our style of doing it. And you're going to have to find your own style, your own path, the own music on your own property that you run to and you, you beat to. Um, back to the whole things we learned. <laughs> I'm all over the place. So um, do some research, do some learning, get some things under your belt. It might be working at a farm, like I said, we're not the best to work with because it takes me three times as long to explain to somebody. I'd much rather have somebody come for a tour, learn things, work, ask questions where I've dedicated that time versus I have one day to put up this section of fence and if I have to explain to you how to use the fence post pounder five times or that you have to go into so many depth or you have to stretch it to this hard, if I have to explain that to you over and over and why, my one-day project becomes three-day project, and it's not something I want to do. And in every case, I always think things are way going to be easier than they're supposed to be. Oh, that's easy. We'll just put this gate on here. Yeah, that never works out the right way. It always is five times as long as you think it's going to take. Anyway, um, most people who buy property are usually property poor when you just get started. You've got down payments. You've got moving expenses. You've got stuff that you just want to start out, you know, don't sink everything into it right away. Go slow. Learn. And I didn't do it, so I'm, you know, lessons learned. I'm teaching you what I should have done looking back. It's hard. It's hard when you have going from a third of an acre to 30 plus acres and you just see all the possibilities and you want to hurry up and get your livestock going and get your trees going and get your garden going because the sooner you can get the ground prepped for a garden, the sooner you can get it in. Yeah, but maybe your garden's going to be in the wrong place. Maybe your effort's going to be wasted because where you put it is a washout area so the first big rain you get floods your garden and it's toast. Maybe it's not the best place because you hit rocks. Maybe it's on your leach field. Do you know where your leach field is? Do you know what a leach field is? And if you don't know what a leach field is, for septic systems where your liquid waste goes to sink back into the ground. Um, you know, so many of these kinds of things that I wish we would have done differently is learning and observing and asking the right questions. And a lot of times you don't know what questions to ask. Huh. <sighs> Let's see, what, like I said, you're going to have to figure out what works for you and in your location and your management style. We had great aspirations that we were going to be five years profitable on the farm and, you know, we'd start being able to pay bills off with the farm. And for the most part, the expansions and anything that we make on the farm goes back into the farm. So we don't make a profit. We're not putting the money into our bank accounts other than holding it until we need to go buy fencing or we need to build another building or we need to 
do some sort of repair because that's something you're going to have to do if you've never done it before is lots of repairs and plan for the inevitable. Your pump may be great, may be brand new, may go out tomorrow. You never know. That's an expensive piece. If you've got a well and it's 500 feet down and you don't know anything about wells, your well may dry up because you've never been on a well. You don't know what your um, replenish rate and what your replenish rate is is how much water from the the groundwater takes to fill your well back up in between draining it. We're on a spring. It doesn't take, you know, it's constantly flowing. However, this summer when we had a drought, we learned that if we leave the water on irrigating or filling a trough and we forget about it, and it, which just goes back down the hillside, we will deplete the um, cistern, which is a thousand gallon cistern, before the spring was able to fill it back up or compensate for what we were taking out, drained it down to the point where our pump went dry and then it overheated. Usually that pump is under at least three to four feet of 55 degree constantly flowing water. When we drained it, it was had none, sucked up rocks, burnt up, that was $700. Just from that lesson learned the hard way. So. If you don't know those things, those are some things to ask about your property or do some testing of it. Our friend down the road, who, same county, you know, she's down the road is what I say, but it's a good 15-minute drive to her house. They used to have great well water, except for they were not too far from a quarry, and they were blasting in the quarry, and one day something shifted, and their once plentiful well is now not plentiful. So during the summer months, when rainfall is less here, they have to be very, very water conscious. So a lot of their barns and things fill up water troughs for their horses and animals. They also have to go water conservation that they may go to a family member's house in town to do laundry. So, you know, a luxury of doing laundry at your own house, they now have to go out because they just don't have the water load for it. Or the whole, if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down philosophy. Or composting toilets. Or any of the guys go outside to go to the bathroom. To pee, not to poop. Uh, or to be specific there. Because, you know, don't necessarily need the facilities and you can go water a tree with it. But those are during the times. And do you know those kinds of things about your property? See, this goes back to that whole observing piece. What you experience in the spring may not be the same during fall or winter. Your winds may shift. Your water flow may shift. You, you, you have different circumstances. Um, you know, what's your, your, your tree cover? What, you know, all these kinds of things are things that you should consider and be observant. Um, I would say make a journal and keep notes, and I tried to do that, but I was too excited and I didn't do it. If you do do it, if you do planning these kinds of things, maybe that's something that you could... Oh, fucking A. Somebody has parked on both sides of the goddamn road, and it's very, very narrow for a truck like mine to get through. Bunch of dicks. Anyway, Sorry. If you got a big truck with big oversized wheels that stick out, don't park on the damned road. Observe and, and record your observations and then learn from others. Um, 
know. Also, don't try to plant all these weird and unique things if you don't eat those things. There's something to do. You know, there's a bunch of wasted effort. I want to grow this and I want to grow that. Well, do you eat it? Well, no. But I have land and I can do it. Well, then why are you growing it if you don't eat it? Well, somebody else will buy it. Well, unless you have a market for it, you might want to go check that out before you start growing things. Um, you know, we grow lettuces and things over the winter and whatnot. And because we have the high tunnel, and that's great. We can have salads and kale and um, kimchi materials, radishes, all kinds of cold-loving stuff. And we thought, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to sell these. You know what? Not a lot of people want lettuce or uh, salads in the winter. And, you know, where we're at, we're only a mile from a fairly decent-sized city. I mean, I say it's fairly decent, but it's like, I don't know, 30,000, 40,000 people, maybe. Um, but in order for me to sell that, do I want to go to the farmer's market and sit for eight hours? Not really. I got other things I can do better that I might make more money doing something at the farm than I would be any kind of money that I would make there. Well, how about we just sell at the farm? Well, that means anytime somebody shows up, I got to stop what I'm doing to go wait on them. And despite saying make an appointment, nobody keeps their appointment times. They show up early. They show up late. They don't show up at all. And then you're left with having to wrap up whatever you're doing Go meet them, sell them $4 dozen of eggs or a 4 or $5 bag of lettuce, and then go back to doing whatever you're doing. And it, it's, it becomes a hassle and a pain, and it's just not worth the effort. So you got to think, where is your, eff, your uh, best efforts going to be? What's your biggest bang for your buck? And that's why I say that um, Richard Perkins' book is great. Because it showed how much time, how much effort, how much money it cost to do some of these things, and where was the biggest return on investment. So I think I've rambled for well over two hours now. I am back home. i got to go open the gate, go up to the house, and grab some lunch. So hopefully that was informative. I don't know. I kind of rambled about it. Maybe you learned something. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you want to know some more things. Text us. Email us. Follow us on Facebook. Um, whatever, if you want to learn more or you weren't clear about something, or where could you go get information on this, or where could I get information on that, feel free to reach out to us. We'd be welcome to it. Until next time, and possibly have my co-host with me, we will talk to you again later. All right, everybody, I am back. This is going to be a longer-than-normal podcast because I'm still talking about permaculture, one of my favorite things. We're now on our way home, got our spent grain, our 3,000 pounds of food for the animals, and this will take us to at least another week to feed everybody. Um, so, anyway, back to the permaculture. So, it's not just about food, food production. I mean, that's a main portion of it. But it's also buildings construction. So I don't really go too much into it because we haven't been designing our home because our home already had a, a structure on it to live in. But had I wanted to do it over again, and, you know, let's just say we had a rich uncle, you know, War, Daddy Warbucks who gave us some money, 
what would we do? We'd buy land, probably where we're at now, and I would say I would build an Earthship. If you've never heard of what an Earthship is, Earthship is another pinnacle of permaculture. Stupid spammers. I should have recorded and got what I say, but I don't have my earpiece in. It's just a microphone. Um, we do all kinds of things with spamming calls. Uh, I'll set the phone down and say I'm going to look for whoever they were asking about. Usually it's me, and I pretend not to be me. I'll go find him. He's in the barn somewhere, and you know, see how long I can keep him on the phone. We likes to talk to him in a demonic voice, tell her that uh, they've reached Satan's hotline. She's here to steal their soul. Usually they hang up right away. Sometimes she'll cuss him out. Sometimes she has fun and see how long she gets to keep him on the phone. Anyway, back to permaculture. You know, something shiny. It's me. It's a squirrel. So, um, building design. So you think about, you know, passive solar heating. Where are your windows? Where is your water coming from? If you don't know what an Earthship is, there is tons of information out there. And probably one of the best video documentaries I've seen on it is from a channel by a woman named Kirsten Dirksen on YouTube. She has um, a documentary channel, I guess. She's a journalist called Fair Companies. Um, anyway, look up Kirsten Dirksen and Earthship. Uh, I think they're anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour and a half. I love almost all of her videos. She does alternative buildings and um, different types of environmentally friendly stuff or you know, tiny houses or converting the most odd shaped or um, location for buildings into livable houses, uh, transformation, uh, furniture. I mean, all of the stuff she, she does is along the whole permaculture mindset, but she never uses the term. She's interviewed some people who talk about permaculture, but she herself has not actively uh, talked about it. <clears throat> she usually lets the other people do the talking. She just asks questions about what's going on. But if I had to do it over, I would build an earthship. So an Earthship uses passive heating and cooling. It's built into usually the side of a hill. You use recycled tires and rammed earth as part of your building. You have indoor growing areas. You recycle all of your gray and black water. Um, I mean, it's just phenomenal how much function stacking um, they have in these Earthships. Um, the guy who designs them and builds them, he's kind of, uh, he's out there in some cases, but his mind's, you know, the why he's doing it and how he's doing it and that you, you have to build it by hand and have a community effort and this and that. Granted, you might need to because I can tell you building them uh, one by yourself will take you forever. Now, you can use some technology and tools to speed up the process, but... That's the kind of home I would use. I mean, it uses a lot of native materials, a lot of things that are waste materials that you turn into resources. Um, you have very minimal heating and cooling. Your water is all harvested from rainwater, or you're using your gray water to water your plants that are in the house that you, in turn, are eating from that help purify the air. Phenomenal stuff. Um, we don't do enough talking about earthships. <clears throat> Um, 
but that's that's part of it as well as you know these what I call them the vinyl villages where they bulldoze a, a row crop field no trees nothing else scrape all the topsoil off put up a bunch of cookie cutter houses that look all alike they may change color they may change slight design but for the most part they're all the same and you know then they put in all of these junk trees like your um oh what kind of pear they are it's the the flowering pear bartlett pear no bradford pear one of those and they're very weak they usually fall over and break off after a couple of years from wind damage. All of the trees are usually having to be staked. And you have no old growth. The wind whips through them. The wind whips through the, the vinyl siding. And, you know, it just... I don't like those kind of building areas, personally. Um, I don't want to say I lived in one, but we've been there before. Um but you think about having larger windows if you're where I'm at in North America. You have larger windows south-facing. And if you can, you put deciduous trees um, in front of those so that when the summer's there, the leaves block out the light and you have a lot of natural light coming in through those big windows. And then in winter, when the leaves fall off the trees, the sun gets through and can heat the house up. So it's function stacking. Um, you know, just some of those kinds of thought processes when you're building your house would be great. Don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, our house is, is fairly nice and decent. And... Sorry, somebody was... I'm losing some of my spent, spilt, spent grain out the back of the truck as I'm going through downtown Indy because it was really overfilled. And people don't like driving behind me. That's their problem. Anyway, um, uh, you know, where our house is positioned, it's uphill from our water source, which is a spring. So we're having to pump that water up. What would be nice is to have our water source above the house and have gravity fed so that even if we lose power, we still have water coming to the house and have the ability to flush toilets or water livestock and whatnot. So we are working on a plan to use a solar pump to pump the water from our cistern, currently, that comes out from the spring, and pump it up to a much bigger cistern up on top of a hill above our house. And any of the overflow from that, once it gets full, will feed into livestock troughs. So gravity feeding everything. In theory, in my mind, it works. But we have to get some infrastructure in place, and these are some of those type 1 errors of where buildings are, where fencing is, because the water lines that I need to go from my uphill cistern go through multiple fence lines, goes across where we have our small koi pond, duck pond area, so it creates a bigger issue. And, you know, because we've put fencing and trees and plants and things there, it's much uh, a tighter space so we're having to limit what kind of equipment we can do and I'm not particularly wanting to hand dig water lines and electric lines through all of that three plus feet down because that's where our frost line is in Indiana um, you know so there's those kinds of things there's 
waste stream handling. There's community building, and you know something that they started off way back when in permaculture is the the sense of credits, so that you're not using fiat currency or the current money system. It'd be equivalent to using, say, Bitcoin or something, and your vested interest in it is how much you contribute to your community. So some of those kinds of things are are permaculture practices. Now, I have the Permaculture Designer's Manual by Bill Mollison, and it is not something you can sit down and read. It's not something I would recommend to anybody unless you've been through permaculture training because it is like a textbook manual for engineering. It's it's very detailed. It talks, I don't say high level because I guess you could understand it, but it, it's like a textbook. Now, some of the other people I've mentioned, like um, Mark Shepard, his book, Restoration Agriculture, it's a little more easy to follow. He, he, while he's doing permaculture principles, he doesn't necessarily call it permaculture a lot of the time. Um, ben Falk has a book. I've never not had his. Um, there's uh, Richard Perkins has two pretty good books, and we own both of them. Um, his first one is... Uh, how to make money using permaculture. So he goes through, um, he is permaculture-esque, but he's a market farm. He does a lot of things. He is, oh, I want to say in Sweden, somewhere up there, cold area. He does market gardening, um, but he lays his entire operation out in his book about what everything costs to run it, to set it up, how much he's getting on return, what's his return on investment, how long it takes. And some of his numbers blew me away. I was thinking, you know, from our point of view and our scale, what would make money? And some of the simplest things make the biggest money with the least, least amount of investment. One of those being tree starts or plant starts. Um, makes tons of money for little investment of just starting trees because people don't want to do it. Um, or they'd rather have three to four year old trees versus, you know, saplings. Well, it takes time and they don't want to wait the three to four years. So if you start that three to four years, you can sell a, a fruit tree for 20 to $40, you know, just by letting it set it and forget it pretty much. Put it in a pot, water it every once in a while, uh, keep it pruned back or keep it alive and before long you start having a regular season of crop of fruit trees that cost you little to nothing to start so um, some other things that are like that that he, would, he went into were mushroom growing something I wouldn't have thought would be as hugely um, profitable as he did but he's growing them in shipping containers he can control control the moisture he can control the humidity uh, moisture is the humidity but the light levels uh, grows them in six foot sacks stuffed with straw and you know little investment little work maintaining it you know he also goes into how much time he puts in or his staff puts into each one of these endeavors it's really number driven it's uh, something that a buddy of mine Darby Simpson, he, uh, you say Excel never lies, which when you start putting in your numbers, it doesn't. 
And that's something that a lot of people who are, you know, they recently get, you know, two or three acres, and what can they do to start making their property pay? Well, you're not going to pay your property off with a dozen eggs a week at three or four dollars a dozen. Yes, I mean, right now, eggs and things are eight dollars a dozen in some of the stores, but again, you're not going to pay off your mortgage that way. Could you probably pay for your egg bill? Maybe. Depends on how many chickens you run. Um, I mean, everything is is not necessarily scalable either, I've learned with permaculture. Um, And I learned that from both in permaculture and through working with punk rock farmer Jonathan Lawler. He runs 30, 40 acres of produce production. And so we're talking, let's say, five or ten acres of watermelons or cantaloupes or tomatoes or peppers. You know, what you do there versus your own backyard garden are not the same. Um, How you harvest it, how you plant it, how you weed it, how you irrigate it, it, it's different. And in most cases, I've not seen any permaculture farms bigger than 10 acres. I mean, we are a, a, a permaculture farm, per, per se, but we're also running a lot more livestock. Um, we're probably 50 plus percent of our own food that we generate. We'd ideally like to be more. We do sell the overage. But, you know, if we really, really were function stacking, we could probably up that to 70 to 90% of our property and uh, food being produced here. But it's only one possible, one and a half, two people, because senior farm boss works off farm. I mean, she is on farm working from home, but, you know, she's not there doing the livestock harvesting and things. She's only got so many hours in a day that she can dedicate to the farm. Got junior farm boss who can do a lot, but she also has homeschool, and there's some things that she physically can't do. There's some things that I have to do that I can't dedicate to food production. So, you know, could we take on people? Yeah, but people won't do it the way that I want it to be done, and I'm much easier to do it on my own than watch somebody struggle to do it, and then takes it five times as long because they don't know what they're doing and me having to sit there and watch them that's two people's energy wasted to do one task so it you know we get offers all the time can i come work can i come learn yeah but i i'm not good to work with uh there's lots of profanities we wild woman has more profanities than i do she gets tired of people asking dumb questions such as well, where does the chicken nuggets come from on a chicken? Or they just want to come and see the baby goats and play with the baby goats and feed the baby goats. Well, there's other things to do like muck and stalls, like, you know, um, weeding gardens, things that people don't want to do because it's not the fun jobs, but that's the, usually the things that take the most time to do. That's where you need the most help. Kind of digressing off the whole permaculture thing. What I'm saying is there's a lot of things out there to learn and gather and put together that it, it took me oh I took a class it was uh, it was scheduled of 72 hours worth of training just in the videos 
then there was another 70 hours of question and answers that I went through. And then even then, I didn't know what I didn't know. And so what may work on my farm may not work on yours. You may not have the right management style. You may not have the right soil. You might be in a different grow zone. Um, you know, even on our own property, we have different places where some things do really well and some things don't. And it could be soil. It could be you know, because of the hungry, hungry horde, which is the goats and sheep that will get out. And they've ended up decimating some of our, our tree plants. So we need a better management style for them. And until we can get a better management style to keep them off of the trees, can't let trees grow up to, to full potential. So we're having to do that in sections. So we have the forbidden zone, which no animals are allowed in. And that's where a lot of our berry bushes and tree, fruit trees and strawberry plants and those kinds of things are. And the problem is we get lots of grass growing. So how are we going to keep the grass out? So is that mowing it? can't get a mower because we have such densely planted areas um, we're working on slowly converting all of the grass into edible plants or something that'll feed the bees or pollinators but that takes time so we're not made of money and we do it a little bit here and a little bit there at it as we can um, we have an orchard that we had to fence off then electrify because every time we seem to spend any money on fruit trees, the damned goats go in there and decimate everything before we ever can get the trees established and end up killing them. So we've made this mistake several times of putting trees in different areas and then the animals either get into there somehow or we didn't fence them off enough that they can push down fences, go around fences, go under fences, go over fences. So our management style didn't work but just because it doesn't work in our place might not mean that you don't have it maybe you don't have a hungry hungry horde and you could plant as many trees as you want get them established then bring livestock in that would be better looking in hindsight um but then you've got to you know in our case we had to mow all those pastures so our first year we used push mowers to mow seven acres let me tell you that was not fun and we did it once the mowing, it was so tall that we would only have to go at a snail's pace, otherwise it would bog down the mowers. Then we got more grazers who took care of it. Well then, they were eating so much that they ran out of pasture, so we needed to make more pasture for them, which meant we got more animals because we had more pasture. And so it was a cycle. Looking back, if we had 20-20 vision when we started and knew what we were going to do, I would have maybe bought a zero-turn mower as opposed to our big tractor and planted a lot of my fruit and nut trees before we ever got livestock. I mean, chickens, ducks, geese, rabbits, fine. But none of the sheep, goats, cows, horses. Oh yeah, horses will eat your, your fruit trees as well. Um, that being said, you know, if you are just starting out, think about that. Everybody wants to get livestock first. It depends on what your end goals are. You get livestock first, your trees are going to suffer if you ever wanted to do an orchard. Or you have to keep them separate and then you have to mow the orchard. Another problem, you know, misconception or what people do, and I think is a mistake, 
is as soon as they get property, they think that they need to go spend twenty to fifty thousand dollars on a tractor. We didn't have a tractor for the first three or four years that we lived on this property. And the only reason we got one was because the guy who was cutting hay for us said he was going to stop doing it. And we had less than two months before we needed to cut the hay. And we didn't have a tractor, nor did we have any way to mow 20-plus acres. So we had to go get a used tractor, which probably... It was okay when we bought it. It's, you've got tractor maintenance. You've got... You know, I never had a tractor before, so learning curve of how to use it. And was it the right, tri right tractor with the right implements for what we needed at the time? And kind of, sort of, not really. You know, the hay equipment worked, but uh, some of it was older than my wife and I combined. So you're talking 80 years old. And there's, you can't find parts for some of those things that are that old. And there's always something that's breaking or going wrong or not just perfectly aligned and if you do get the tractor the cutter the baler everything working the way it's supposed to and you're getting to the point where you can get hay something's going to break or it's going to rain and you lose all of that so it just never fails that's why i hate doing hay we haven't done hay in two years three years never going to look back never going to do hay again uh, my NRCS friend, when he came, he says, you know, there's a certain point where doing your own hay makes sense, and there's a certain point where buying hay makes more sense. And he says, it's up to you to decide where that is, and, you know, it depends on how productive your hay fields are, what kind of livestock you have, how much that livestock is eating, what are the nutritional needs of that livestock, because... A sheep's uh, nutritional needs are different than a dairy goat, are different than a cow. A meat cow is different than a dairy cow, is different than a horse. So, you know, all those things factored into it, you know, what do you, you need for your hay? For me, I want to say, personally, 20 acres is about the point. If you've got more than 20 acres of pasture to maintain, Paying it might make sense if you have smaller livestock and you don't have the ability to rotate them regularly. So, if you were, if it were me in my circumstance, and let's just say you have 40 acres, so you're over that 20 acre threshold, most of it is or was in row crop or was in pasture before. Before I spent twenty to fifty thousand dollars on a tractor i'd fence the external perimeter in with uh good quality fencing and if you could hire somebody we chose to do it ourselves yes we learned some lessons yes we didn't do it the right way yes we made some financial mistakes by buying cheaper fence t-posts were too far away we didn't stretch the fence would we have made up the difference in our lessons learned by having somebody paying somebody to do the fence. One, it would have been quicker, but two, some of the quotes I'm looking at for that amount of fencing, so just the external perimeter fence for 40 acres, we're talking $20,000. I mean, at that point, you're getting a tractor just for the external. That's none of the internal fencing or water lines or gates or these kinds of things. 
And what we ended up doing, we learned this kind of, I would say the hard way, is instead of buying a roll of fence here or there as you, you need it, planning out your projects and buying in bulk and getting a discount. So at our particular tractor supply, uh, 11 rolls, maybe 10 rolls, 10 rolls of fence I think is where the discount comes in. Um, and we buy, we've changed what we bought, but now we buy 48 inch fence, woven field fence with 10 gauge top and bottom wires. And that's important because the goats want to go over the fence. The sheep want to go under the fence because they don't jump. And so the sheep, the goats will walk the fence down, jump it. They lower it enough that the sheep then can either jump it or they lose the integrity that the sheep can now go under the fence in different places. So, you need to put your posts in at the right... We use T-posts as well. And both T-posts and wooden posts, um, they're at bulk discount. I want to say it's 400 at our tractor supply for T-posts. We haven't bought the wooden posts because we don't have a wooden post fence post driver. We did not have an auger at the time to dig fence posts. And I wasn't digging all those by hand. It's too much time. With a steel T-post, you can get a T-post pounder, like 30 bucks, and away you go. You just drive them into the ground. They're fairly easy to pull back up when you need to adjust something or, you know, move fencing because you did a type 1 error like we did. I would fence the area in, do it myself, probably work with somebody like I worked with Darby installing fence and he uses a different type of fence but I learned a lot of lessons on what to do what not to do what I liked what I didn't like um, just from being his hands you know that was helping him pull wire run insulators um, stretch wire those kinds of things stretching is a whole nother piece that you know, we did the wrong way as well um, it also depends on what kind of livestock you're going to be keeping are you going to be keeping cows? Are you going to be keeping goats? What size goats? Um, Full-size goats or the, you know, Nigerian dwarf type goats, the minis? Um, are you going to do sheep? What kind of sheep? Hair sheep or wolf sheep? And, you know, all of those things should be factored into what kind of fencing. If you say you don't know, you want to do everything, well, then you should do a fence that does everything. Um wool sheep you can't do barbed wire because their wool will get caught in the barbed wire and they'll get hung up the more they struggle the more they get tangled and then they end up dying so barbed wire is not your friend anywhere where a sheep can get to it cows will jump just a woven wire you got to put a hot wire or barbed wire across the top which will keep cows and or goats from jumping in the most part um you know a lot of people want to do the Nigerian dwarfs type goats because they're smaller, they eat less, they're easy to handle, you can do more in, a, in an area. Yeah, but they also got itty bitty teeties. So, you know, you're talking with the teats to milk, it's a two finger milker, unless you either build or buy a milker. And, you know, using two fingers to milk, you definitely get hand cramps if you're doing it by hand. Um, for a while we built our own milker and we have full-size goats and even then the teats aren't necessarily the biggest and uh, 
wife didn't like it, so she bought her own uh, battery-powered milker. She loves it. She can do like a gallon in this particular milker. But if you're doing a cow, completely different story. You can't use that. Um, you know, if you're doing horses, that's a different fence. Cows and horses can be held in with barbed wire. The other animals cannot. We learned that the hard way. You can electrify it. Uh, Greg Judy does single wire electric fence with his sheep, and he does hair sheep. Whether that's his management style, his culling practices, whatever, it works for him. Sure as shit did not work for us. We went to four strands of hot wire. Could not keep the sheep in. One, we didn't stretch it. Two, um, the sheep with their big wool coats will, like, kind of... It's funny, they kind of back up, they stump their legs, and they just bolt through it as fast as they can. They may get shocked, they may not, but either way, they made it through with one pop. And then they don't want to go back in because if they did get shocked, they're done. Wool sheep, you got to get them on the face or the nose, or maybe their legs, but you're not going to hit them with, with most of the cases with electric nets. So, um, sometimes electric netting works. We have not had success with electric netting. We have killed a couple of sheep with electric netting, and not because they got electrocuted, it's because they just got tangled up and ended up strangled themselves in it. Um, we weren't the fence wasn't even on at the time and they got tangled up and died so you know we've tried electric netting that doesn't work they either get tangled and then when they get shocked they freak out they get even more tangled so you know that poor sheep who had that happen doesn't like the electric netting but it, it just didn't work for us a lot of people it does work for a lot of people can use electric netting with pigs and sheep and it just and goats and chickens it just hasn't worked for us so just because it works for some people doesn't mean it worked for everybody you have to find your own style and sometimes that's trial and error sometimes that's visiting other farms the best thing i can say is start visiting other people's farms see what works see what doesn't see what you like see what you don't like um uh, you know we went to a couple of farms and while they said that they had pasture pigs, the pigs were essentially in a confined area in the woods, which they ended up having just this big, nasty stink hole of a mess that was liquid slurry. We, on the other hand, have moved our pigs. Now, they ought, they were in an area for almost recycled pigs, but two years, but it was two and a half acres in the woods. So, you know, we, and it was way far away. You don't want to put pigs close by your house or by your barn where you're going to be smelling them every day. Even if they're in a pasture-based system, eventually they do stink. So you need to let that area rest for a while. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of way going off on a big tangent about things we've learned the hard way. And, you know what the permaculture, you know, type pieces mean. So, you know, watching some of Jeff's videos, he does use heavy machinery. He'll use heavy machinery to make ponds. He'll use them to make swales. Sometimes they do use tractors to mow down an area. Usually he likes to use the animals. Um, we didn't have, you know, we had the tractor, which we haven't used in three years. We need to get rid of it, fix it up, get rid of it. What we actually found was a zero turn has been kind of a lifesaver or, you know, a little yard tractor, which we used for a couple of years till it finally died, a little wheel horse. So with the zero turn, 
one, it's faster mowing than like a little yard tractor would. But if you have a yard tractor, use a yard tractor. What we found is we put, uh, we got a, somewhere we got a little two-wheel trailer, hook it up to the zero turn, put uh, pallet um, IBC totes, either the cages or just the metal bottom piece on it and tied it to the pallet or to the trailer and we use that to move things around the farm whether that's uh, feeding for animals whether that's picking up wood in the for firewood out in the woods of down trees and, and branches and things or uh, mowing pastures so we thought that the sheep and the goats and the cows would take care of pastures that were overgrown so when we start taking over a new pasture that hasn't had any animals on it it could be anywhere from knee high to shoulder high and you know we thought we'd just turn them out there and they'd start eating not the case they'll eat some stuff they'll make trails but they will not eat it down like we were hoping they would and the reason being is that doesn't taste good anymore when things with some of those plants and um woody material gets too tall they don't like it anymore they like the new growth as we wild woman calls it the candy grass so um both joel salatin and um i just said his name i can't remember it now about who does the hairless sheep anyway it'll come to me um they have different grass lengths and when you want to eat it you know, you got adult grass, you got teenager grass, and you got baby grass. And it, it, it's all about the length of it and how long it takes to come back. But what we found that the sheep, the goats, the cow, and the horses all love the newest growth. And so what we did with that zero turn was we would go blaze a trail uh, where we wanted to fence in. We'd go put our posts, put our... Um, fencing up stretch it put our barbed wire across the top and then let the animals go in now they'll go in and eat a lot of stuff they take a lot of it they trample a lot but then once they're done with it they really don't like too much anymore we'll go in with the zero turn and mow everything down to as high as that setting will go which is about six inches so that's saplings that's young trees everything gets mowed then when new growth starts coming back in about two to three months we send them back in there and then any of the saplings the blackberry brambles the wild rose they've taken that out a second or third time and so the plant has used all of its uh, reserves that were in the root system to try and put out new growth and they end up dying the things that are meant to be grazed the grasses the clovers the alfalfa, the legumes, uh, plantains, those kinds of things, they thrive on getting mowed every so often. So that's essentially what you're doing is, if the animals won't do it, you need to do that job, so that's mowing it. And you know, once we get a pasture that's established with regular rotation, we never really have to mow it again. Now, sometimes if we let it go, we're going to let it rest, or we had fencing issues we couldn't get to and it gets too far gone we will mow it but that zero turn has done it for us um there's another waste resource that just hit me was 
we have a deal with one of our local tree services um, that they come and they drop wood chips and logs on the property. We have a separate entrance just for them. And then there's our firewood. We never have to go cut a tree on our property for firewood again. We have probably two acres of stored up logs just waiting to turn into firewood. And that's how we heat both our domestic hot water and heat the house in winter. Um, we're looking at possibly using that to heat a high tunnel or another building uh, coming up using an outdoor wood boiler. So we're turning a waste into a resource. And a lot of these trees are diseased, damaged. Um, they're too close to buildings or whatever, so they're coming down. And rather than going to a landfill or somewhere else, they, they drop them off there. And when the tree service has to drop them off somewhere other than our property, they have to pay to get rid of them. So it's saving them money, giving us a resource that we don't have to um, do extra work for, and it all ends up working out in the end. So, you know, kind of recapping on things I would have done differently had I known what I know now. One is observe our land for a year. And, you know, do maybe put in a garden, but maybe that's not the final home of a garden. Um, I would have put our garden closer to our house, which we are working on. We're moving things that way. But, you know, if you put your, your garden in the back 40 as far away, which is where a lot of people do them, away from the house, you don't visit it as often. Put your garden right next to your house so every day you're walking by it. Put your garden on your way to your chicken coop so as you're going you maybe pick up some weeds or pick up some plants that have gone too far along and gone to seed, gone to flower, gone whatever. Feed that to your chickens along the way. The chickens are getting fresh vegetables, you're taking care of part of your problem, and it's turning a waste into a resource for your birds. Um, you know, there's a, the whole permaculture piece, there's zones. So you have zone uh, zero through five. Zone zero is your house. It's where you live. Zone one is where you visit every single day. It's usually your back door and probably 20-ish feet around the house. And do you always go around to the back side of your house? Probably not. Then don't put something back there. Put things closer where you walk every day. You're more likely to see when plants are, you know, produce is ripe. What weeds are going on? What pests or you know diseases are there because you're looking at it every single day zone two is you're, you're visiting less frequently zone three is maybe your orchard where you visit it maybe once or twice a year maybe more maybe less zone four is something you visit maybe once a year maybe that's a, a wooded area and you go collect woods out there maybe that's your your nut crop and you go you know, when the nuts fall in the fall, that's the only time you ever go out there. Or maybe you visit it just to mow in between the trees. Or and, you know, if you're not mowing, you're sending out the animals to graze that area to keep back the weeds and the brush. Um, then you have zone five, which is your wild area, which is untouched. And everywhere needs to have a little bit of wild area. And that's for nature to just do its own thing and... And we have some areas that are like that out in the woods. We don't touch it. We don't graze it. It's on the other sides of fences, so our grazers can't get there. And that's like a deer super highway back there. So they will jump our fence. They can easily cross our fence. But for the most part, they just travel along the backside of the fence um, since our grazers are usually taking care of everything inside the fence. Um, we have different pockets here and there of just 
wild stuff, and for the most part, we don't touch it. We might take goats out there with us on a walk or whatever, and the goats kind of trim some things back. It's a nice treat. They're getting some things that they usually don't get in their um, different pastures where they're at. But you design your property about where you're going to be traveling the most. So if you are, have a barn, plant between your house and your barn. That's your garden. Have a walkway that's something that's edible. Either you're taking something from that area to your animals, or on your way back from tending to your animals, you're bringing something back to the house. You know, those are some of the things that I wish we would have done differently. And, you know, looking back that maybe you won't make the same mistakes. Um, not getting all the animals at first. So, <laughs> we did what we tell everybody not to do now. Which is, get a little bit of everything and see what you like. So, when we first started out, we got everything that we possibly could. And learned the hard way, not everything is the same. Not everything gets along. Lots of different illnesses and disease that are between the animals or unique to the different animals. Uh, we kind of got everything through it against the wall and saw what stuck. Uh, originally, I was gung-ho for goats, dairy goats, because you know six goats can graze in the same area as a cow, and they'll eat all the browse and the brush and the poison ivy, and we had lots of that when we bought the property. I hate goats now. I wouldn't want goats if I had to. The only reason we have goats is because my wife and junior farm boss like the goats. And some of them are pets. That's another thing. If you start putting names on things, they're no longer livestock. They're pets. And then you become feeding pets rather than letting the livestock work for you or you eating the, the livestock. Which is not a bad thing, but if it's pets and you're having to buy feed for these... Or as they get older, special feed that's more expensive because you just can't let them go. Sometimes you got to be able to pull the trigger and, you know, you know the lamb, the, the sheep, the, the goat, whoever needs to go for processing. Um, unfortunately, we have a lot of those pets that just, they're going to end up dying here and we'll end up burying them somewhere and they're not going to go for meat. And it's a problem with having... <laughs> where we are of having pets versus livestock. So you need to think about that as, are you going to get too attached to some of these animals? Uh, we thought we were with rabbits, and we did have the breeders that had names and were pets, and those were hard to see them go when we finally got rid of rabbits. But don't give them a name. There you are. You know, we gave them names of meat, pork chop, and those kinds of things. Um, and if you needed to name them and be able to talk about them, name them some sort of food item because that's where they're going to be destined to go. Um, you know, beware of free animals or livestock auctions because we ended up taking in a bunch of animals that they, the owner was running some sort of haphazard animal rescue she had all kinds of health issues. Her partner bailed on her. She couldn't afford, nor could she physically take care of them anymore. And they needed to go to new homes. And what we originally wanted was one male goat that was an Oberhosley full. I mean, he was massive. He was probably 300 plus pounds. Um, big four foot horns. Huge, but he was scared of everything. Um, he had never been handled, was living in the streets of Indy for a while, took like 
a month for them to end up capturing them, came to live in her house. She had eight foot like high fences all around him, and he pretty much stayed by himself the whole time. Um, came to our house, he was super hard to contain, was not personable, ended up escaping and just living in the woods for a while. I mean, we're talking like a year. We'd see him every once in a while. We'd try to get him to come out with food. He'd come up close to us, but wouldn't come close enough that we could capture him. And then he he died somehow. We don't know. We think maybe he got tangled up in some old fencing that was in the woods or barbed wire or something. But he ended up dying in the woods, and we couldn't do anything about it. But with him... She's like, hey, we've got all these other goats we need to rehome. Do you want these guys too? And we were just starting out. Sure, why not? And supposedly all these goats were fixed, meaning they couldn't have any babies. Yeah, yeah, the vet came out and crushed their testicles with this, you know, special device. Okay, we didn't know enough at that time. We believed her. The vet came out and did all this. Every damn one of those goats got in and impregnated all of our dairy goats. So we no longer had pure dairy goats. We had this mutt breed they were all horny they were all stinking because male goats pee all over their face they destroyed every gate every fence every enclosure to get to the girls some of these goats were 300 pounds some of our littler goats were not big enough they were ended up killing some of our goats it just sucked so that was the last time i was ever able to authorize any new animals to the farm because of this fiasco along with those goats came eight alpacas we'd never had alpacas before um and two llamas so now the llamas came from somebody else the llamas were a good deal they were just old 4-h retiring llamas and for the first year they hated me they loved my wife at some point they changed they loved me i could go out there and rub on them hand feed them and everything they'd spit at her every time she came around so, weird dynamic with the llamas. I do miss the llamas. I actually liked the llamas. The alpacas, never to listen to anybody say alpacas are guard animals. They are the dumbest bunch of animals. I despise them more than I despise goats. And they're prey animals. They are not lovey. They are not affectionate. They're all poofy and whatnot, but they hate for you to touch them. They'll run from you. They spit. They have to have their toenails clipped. You have to shear them every year. They Everything wants to kill them, including themselves. They will stick them, their heads into an opening, then not be able to figure out how to get it back out, flip out, and break their own necks trying to get out. They, you know, they will electrocute themselves. They will, from chewing on power cords... They are very susceptible to worms. They are very susceptible to all kinds of illnesses. I despise alpacas. So out of the eight that we had, one was an intact male. We don't think that he ever got anybody. But then their um, they breeding time, they, basically their gestation, that's the word I'm looking for, is roughly a year. So you get them pregnant and that's a whole feat because they don't necessarily want to get bred. There's lots of, you know, keeping them contained or, I don't want to say forcing it, but you got a halter one while the male does his thing. He's got um, guard teeth that are sharp and can uh, 
you know, do some serious damage. I mean, they're almost like canine teeth. They're pointy. They're fighting teeth. If they haven't been cut, I mean, you have lots of spitting. And it's not like a normal human spit. We're talking thick, sticky, partially digested, fermented hay or grass that sticks to you. It smells... It's nasty, especially if they get it in your beard. If you have a beard. Ladies, if you have a beard, you know, you want to keep your beard clean. Uh, or hair, or clothes, and just alpacas suck. Anyway, some people like them. Not for us. Some people love goats. No. My wife and the daughter love the goats. I hate the goats because they're always out. They're always not where they're supposed to be. They destroy fences. They destroy trees. They will poop in their own water bucket and then refuse to drink the water because they pooped in it. And we're talking like, you know, they literally, we have it to the point where they literally have to walk up, back up, hang their butt into an opening to poop in the bucket, and they still manage to do it. They will pee on the hay that they are given to eat, then refuse to eat it. They will walk on the hay that they were given to eat, and they will refuse to eat it. This is including in putting them in hay feeders. I, I just don't get goats. They will waste more hay by pulling it out, messing around with it, and then once it touches the ground, we don't like it. it, it it's yucky. It touched the ground. We're not going to eat it. And they really will starve themselves to death with hay on the ground because they just won't eat it because it touched the ground, it, they peed on it, or somebody else looked at it wrong. Can you tell I don't like goats and alpacas? Um... So anyway, the eight alpacas, we have one left, and she is like, I don't know. She is like super alpaca. She's not the friendliest. She will eat out of my hand now. She hasn't spit on anybody in a good two years. We haven't shorn her in two years, but it doesn't seem to bother her any. Um, she thinks she's a sheep. She walks with a sheep. She lives with the sheep. Um, but, you know, she's managed to survive meningeal worm. She, I mean, she's... She's like a tank. I don't think she'll ever die. But she, out of the eight, nine, she's the only survivor. Um, Minageal worm is another thing we had no knowledge of. Oh, yeah. Before you get any livestock, research the livestock. Everything you need to know. Diseases. Um, don't go to an auction or don't go pick up. Somebody had a free goat and then like, well, how do I keep it? How do I keep it? What can I feed my goat? I see this in all of the homesteading and livestock pages, and it just, it burns my ass. I used to get on these pages and, and wonder why so many people are rude and, and give shitty comments or, you know, whatnot to people starting out. So I, I read a lot before I posted a lot. Now I understand why they did it. Because you don't go get five goats from an auction and then wonder why there's all kinds of ooze and disease and why they're sick because somebody else unloaded them at an auction and you now got their problem animals. I know, I know. I'm going to homesteading and things we learned the hard way versus permaculture. But this is kind of part of it. You know, understanding what you're getting, the meds, the, the necessary equipment for them before you get it. Um, I wish I would have not gotten animals as soon as we did. But yet... It's inevitable. You get land, you get a chance from going from suburbia where you couldn't have anything, and now you want everything all at once. Take your time. There'll be time. But, you know, if you want fruit trees, sometimes it takes 
five to ten years to get fruit, depending on the size you get them. So if that's what you want, put the fruit trees in first. Don't get the animals first, because then they'll eat all your fruit trees, and you won't get any fruit, ever. Um, you know, talking with somebody and going to see other properties or having them, somebody who has some experience, coming to look at your property with you, walk it with you, great. The, um, having a permaculture consultant come out, which, you know, I do that, not advertising that I'm doing that, trying to push that, but, you know, having somebody who's been in the weeds, who's made type one mistakes, who you could learn from, lessons they learned the hard way, have them, get a mentor. If you're new to sheep, Find somebody in your area that does sheep and does it the way you want. We have lots of sheep people around us. Not a lot of wool sheep people around us. They're all commercial meat sheep or 4-H sheep or show sheep. And, you know, that wasn't what we wanted to do. We did not want to have the pedigreed sheep and the just for meat. We didn't want to have hair sheep. We wanted to have wool because... Here's one of the reasons why we chose what we did. Maybe this will make sense to you. Maybe it won't. If you don't want to shear sheep, get hairless sheep. Hairless sheep are not necessarily as rugged as wool sheep. Um, you know, learn your breed. Get good quality stock from somebody. Uh, learn what is good quality stock. Learn what somebody thinks that their stock is worth. May not be really what it's worth. You know, I see people putting on sheep for. $400 for a ewe or a ram and I wouldn't pay $400 for it. We sell some of ours for stupid cheap because either we have too many or we've been in where their situation is and where they are just getting started and paying $400 for one animal or you could get 10 animals for $400. Which would you rather do? So, you know, yes, you want to pay cheaper for it, but you also get what you pay for. And we wouldn't turn sheep over to people who have never had it without actually coming and learning and asking them questions about what they're getting into. Because if their poor management or they don't understand what they're getting into comes back at us, you sold us six sheep. Well, no, you fed them the wrong things. You gave them grain and they've never had grain before. So you killed your sheep by feeding them the wrong stuff. Well, we don't have pasture yet. Well, that would have been important before you got sheep, wouldn't it? So some of those kinds of mistakes, um, finding a mentor, finding a mentor for permaculture, finding a mentor for regenerative grazing, you know, finding somebody who can do these things. And how do you find those people? It's a good question. Friends, family, um, you know, we have some friends who mean all the well and try to tell us and what they would do, but that's how they would do it. That's not our style of doing it. And you're going to have to find your own style, your own path, the own music on your own property that you run to and you, you beat to. Um, back to the whole things we learned. <laughs> I'm all over the place. So um, do some research, do some learning, get some things under your belt. It might be working at a farm, like I said, we're not the best to work with because it takes me three times as long to explain to somebody. I'd much rather have somebody come for a tour, learn things, work, ask questions where I've dedicated that time versus I have one day to put up this section of fence and if I have to explain to you how to use the fence post pounder five times or that you have to go into so many depth or you have to stretch it to this hard, if I have to explain that to you over and over and why, 
my one day project becomes three day project and it's not something I want to do. And in every case, I always think things are way going to be easier than they're supposed to. Oh, that's easy. We'll just put this gate on here. Yeah, that never works out the right way. It always is five times as long as you think it's going to take. Anyway, um, most people who buy property are usually property poor when you just get started. You've got down payments. You've got moving expenses. You've got stuff that you just want to start out. You know, don't sink everything into it right away. Go slow learn and I didn't do it so I'm you know lessons learned I'm teaching you what I should have done looking back it's hard it's hard when you have going from a third of an acre to 30 plus acres and you just see all the possibilities and you want to hurry up and get your livestock going and get your trees going and get your garden going because the sooner you can get the ground prepped for a garden the sooner you can get it in yeah but maybe your garden's going to be in the wrong place Maybe your effort's going to be wasted because where you put it is a washout area, so the first big rain you get floods your garden and it's toast. Maybe it's not the best place because you hit rocks. Maybe it's on your leach field. Do you know where your leach field is? Do you know what a leach field is? If you don't know what a leach field is, it's for septic systems where your liquid waste goes to sink back into the ground. Um, you know, so many of these kinds of things that I wish we would have done differently is learning and observing and asking the right questions. And a lot of times you don't know what questions to ask. <sighs> Let's see. what. Like I said, you're going to have to figure out what works for you and in your location and your management style. We had great aspirations that we were going to be five years profitable on the farm and, you know, we'd start being able to pay bills off with the farm. And for the most part, the expansions and anything that we make on the farm goes back into the farm. So we don't make a profit. We're not putting the money into our bank accounts other than holding it until we need to go buy fencing or we need to build another building or we need to do some sort of repair because that's something you're going to have to do if you've never done it before is lots of repairs and plan for the inevitable. Your pump may be great, may be brand new, may go out tomorrow, you never know. That's an expensive piece. If you've got a well and it's 500 feet down and you don't know anything about wells, your well may dry up because you've never been on a well. You don't know what your um, replenish rate, what your replenish rate is, is how much water from the, the groundwater takes to fill your well back up in between draining it. We're on a spring. It doesn't take, you know, it's constantly flowing. However, this summer when we had a drought, we learned that if we leave the water on irrigating or filling a trough and we forget about it, and it, which just goes back down the hillside, we will deplete the um, cistern, which is a thousand gallon cistern, before the spring was able to fill it back up or compensate for what we were taking out, drained it down to the point where our pump went dry and then it overheated. Usually that pump is under at least three to four feet of 55 degree constantly flowing water. When we drained it, it was had none, sucked up rocks, burnt up, that was $700. Just from that lesson learned the hard way. So, if you don't know those things, those are some things to ask about your property or do some testing of it. Our friend down the road, who, same county, you know, 
if she's up down the road is what I say, but it's a good 15 minute drive to her house. They used to have great well water, except for they were not too far from a quarry and they were blasting in the quarry and one day something shifted and their once plentiful well is now not plentiful. So during the summer months when rainfall is less here, they have to be very, very water conscious. So a lot of their barns and things fill up water troughs for their horses and animals. They also have to go water conservation that they may go to a family member's house in town to do laundry. So, you know, a luxury of doing laundry at your own house, they now have to go out because they just don't have the water load for it. Or the whole, if it's yellow, let it mellow, if it's brown, flush it down philosophy. Or composting toilets, or any of the guys go outside to go to the bathroom. To pee, not to poop. Uh, or to be specific there. Because, you know, don't necessarily need the facilities, and you can go water a tree with it. But those are during the times. And do you know those kinds of things about your property? See, this goes back to that whole observing piece. What you experience in the spring may not be the same during fall or winter. Your winds may shift. Your water flow may shift. You, you, you have different circumstances. Um, you know, what's your, your, your tree cover? What, you know, all these kinds of things are things that you should consider and be observant. Um, I would say make a journal and keep notes, and I tried to do that, but I was too excited and I didn't do it. If you do do it, if you do planning these kinds of things, maybe that's something that you could... Oh, fucking A. Somebody has parked on both sides of the goddamn road, and it's very, very narrow for a truck like mine to get through. Bunch of dicks. Anyway, Sorry. If you got a big truck with big oversized wheels that stick out, don't park on the damned road. Observe and, and record your observations and then learn from others. Um, you know, also, don't try to plant all these weird and unique things if you don't eat those things. There's something to do. You know, there's a bunch of wasted effort. I want to grow this and I want to grow that. Well, do you eat it? Well, no. But I have land and I can do it. Well, then why are you growing it if you don't eat it? Well, somebody else will buy it. Well, unless you have a market for it, you might want to go check that out before you start growing things. Um, you know, we grow lettuces and things over the winter and whatnot, and because we have the high tunnel, and that's great. We can have salads and kale and um, kimchi materials, radishes, all kinds of cold-loving stuff. And we thought, oh yeah, you know, we're going to sell these. You know what? Not a lot of people want lettuce or uh, salads in the winter. And, you know, where we're at, we're only a mile from a fairly decent-sized city. I mean, I say it's fairly decent, but it's like, I don't know, 30,000, 40,000 people, maybe. Um, but in order for me to sell that, do I want to go to the farmer's market and sit for eight hours? Not really. I got other things I can do better that I might make more money doing something at the farm than I would be any kind of money that I would make there. Well, how about we just sell at the farm? Well, that means anytime somebody shows up, I got to stop what I'm doing to go wait on them. And despite saying make an appointment, nobody keeps their appointment times. They show up early. They show up late. They don't show up at all. 
and then you're left with having to wrap up whatever you're doing go meet them sell them four dollar dozen of eggs or a four or five dollar bag of lettuce and then go back to doing whatever you're doing and it's it becomes a hassle and a pain and it's just not worth the effort so you got to think where is your f your uh best efforts going to be what's your biggest bang for your buck and that's why i say that um richard perkins book is great because it showed how much time how much effort how much money it cost to do some of these things and where was the biggest return on investment so i think i've rambled for well over two hours now i am back home i gotta go open the gate go up to the house and grab some lunch so Hopefully that was informative. I don't know. I kind of rambled about it. Maybe you learned something. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you want to know some more things. Text us. Email us. Follow us on Facebook. Um, whatever. If you want to learn more or you weren't clear about something or where could you go get information on this or where could I get information on that, feel free to reach out to us. We'd be welcome to it. Until next time and possibly you have my co-host with me, we will talk to you again later.